if if America cracks down on AI, if America decides to go the way of Europe and crack down on AI, we will people will move to Tokyo, right? Oh, look how much money finance makes. Let's encourage more of it. Yay, that's what we'll specialize in, right? And so we deregulated finance. We had a pro-finance industrial policy. The Zoomers, you gotta you gotta come in and fix things, and we older millennials will help you because we remember a time before the Great Recession. Before the social unrest, we're old enough to remember a time when, like, things worked better. We need to transfer it to you. We need to skip the middle people, skip the Hunger Games mini-generation, and go straight to the Zoomers. The older millennials need to teach the Zoomers how to be optimistic again. And we just don't know. You know, it, it is absolute hubris to think that we can look at a technology before it's even invented and predict whether it will be labor-augmenting or, you know, labor-destroying. Uh, uh, Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm bringing you an interesting conversation with Noah Smith, an economist, former Bloomberg columnist, and now the writer of the No Opinion Substack. A very interesting Substack, which you can find in the description below. Noah is one of those interesting figures that deviates from pretty much every political tribe out there. And I'm sure in this three-hour conversation, almost everyone will find a lot to disagree with. And that's all part of the fun, as you can see when we get to the actual interview. The first half is fo more focused on empirical topics, machine learning, economic forecasts, yimbyism, regulatory policy and political economy. And the second half is more speculative, more normative, more about the political vibe shifts and cultural changes and political changes that have happened in the past few decades. You can find the timestamps for both below, although I found both parts very enjoyable. As always, if you want to help the show, the number one thing you can do is to let a friend know, either in person or online. It's the best thing you can do for the podcast, and also you're helping someone you know find an interesting, informative thing to listen to that'll help them too. Without further ado, here's Noah Smith. So the scenario I want to start off with is... Uh, like many, a Tyler Cowen column. Uh, so in one of his columns, he talks about uh, immigration in a world with declining fertility, that essentially, you know, the more, the more competitive the, the marketplace, essentially, for immigration becomes, the more, uh, the more you're actually going to have to work as a country to attract immigrants. Um, first of all, do you think that this scenario is plausible? I always want to check... Uh, the framing of the question with my guests. And second of all, do you think that that will actually make countries, you know, more, uh, more competitive or more explicitly pro-immigrant as a kind of ideological shift? Uh, yes and yes. So I think that, um, you know, competition for talent is real. Uh, talent is scarce and it's about to get scarcer for a reason that a lot of people don't go into which is that as countries develop, the local market for talent becomes much bigger. So, right. So, you know, um, 20 years ago, you couldn't make a bunch of money or become a famous scientist uh, just staying around in China. So you went to America where you could do that. Now, all the opportunities are in China for you. And I think the same thing is going to happen with India. And those are the two biggest sources of immigration because they're the biggest countries by far. Uh, but it'll eventually happen with Indonesia and Bangladesh and Vietnam and all these other countries as well. Um, the local market for talent will be will be very powerful, and that will be the big competitor, not Canada or Australia or whoever, right? So, so we'll 
it'll be about luring people overseas from home, not about luring people, uh, you know, from other uh, immigrant destinations. And I think in terms of the politics of it, it absolutely will um, make countries, you know, systematically more pro-immigration. You can see this with Poland right now. Uh, of course, Poland's in a bit of a special situation because they're being, you know, threatened by Russia because they all know that after Ukraine, they're next. But, um, but uh, you know, the, the, we just saw Poland approve a plan to bring in huge amounts of immigrants uh, from a select, you know, various select countries. And if you look at those select countries, they're all countries that tend to provide a decent amount of high-skilled immigration. Um, so, you know, you see places uh, like Vietnam or Nigeria, which are known for, you know, sending a lot of like engineers and other high-skilled immigrants abroad. So Poland wants to beef up its population, but it also wants, you know, economic uh, vitality there. So you can, you know, in Poland, of course, is, is controlled by a conservative party, which until recently was pretty anti-immigration. And right. so is it you, still Duda? Is it still the same guy? It, it, it's the same party, but it's not it's not the same ideology. They've shifted, uh, you know, pretty big um, very recently because of Russia, you know, because of this threat. And simply because of economic development, because development creates its own logic, uh, you know, where people think, OK, we have this growth. We've got to keep it going. We've got to let in some smart people who can make us a center of engineering and innovation and all that stuff and research. So I think that that's what those are the two things that are going on with Poland. I think that's going to happen to a lot of countries as, you know, as fertility rates fall, as sort of the large population bulges work their way out. And there's really no young people to support the old people anymore. And um as, you know, as this competition gets fiercer, but also as they grow economically and they think, well, we need to step it up. We need, we, we can't just like build factories for like other countries, companies anymore. We've got to do our own research and invent our own products and create our own brands and blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, the logic of immigration is going to strengthen. Right. I see this. I see this actually happening in industrial policy circles. It's very funny, you know, industrial policy, I think, has mostly been associated with a kind of right-wing protectionism or right-wing uh, immigration restrictionism. But, you know, the, the, they're trying to build out these factories. They're trying to build out essentially manufacturing capacity for all of these very technical projects, right? Um, machine learning hardware is where I'm most familiar, but uh, semiconductors in general, uh, vaccine development, biotechnology, it seems like it seems like all of these areas now that are most, you know, quote unquote strategic all seem to be labor constrained. Do you have the same observations? Absolutely. And it's not just that they're labor constrained uh, because, um, you know, they well, there's two reasons. Number one, it's when we try to do things that we haven't done in a long time, like build a bunch of semiconductor fabs or, re, you know, recreate our manufacturing base. We don't know how to do these things and we can learn and reinvent the wheel, but the easiest way to do it is by getting foreign specialists to come in and sort of get us started and teach us. And a lot of immigration comes from that, you know, impetus comes from that. I think um, a second reason is that America has this, uh, the, these, the software and finance clusters. And if you're familiar mm. with, um, you know, in case, in case listeners are unfamiliar with how much money you can make in these things, you know, you can go make, you know, a Google, uh, you know, manager will be paid a million a year. Um, that's pretty tempting. <laughs> you know, who's going to, you know, whereas, whereas these these semiconductor engineers in Taiwan working at TSMC, these, you know, 70 hour weeks or whatever they work there, you know, they're doing that for $40,000 a year, right? Maybe 50. And Americans, uh, you know, software engineer, um, you know, um, mid-level like management is making a million a year easily. 
at some of these big companies, finance is even more, uh, you know, ridiculous money flood. And so you've got this massive competition, domestic competition for talent from software and finance in America, because we specialize in software and finance. And if we're going to go against our natural specialization and go into more high tech manufacturing, we're going to have to get people who basically don't know how to do software and finance, who know how to do engineer, you know, physical engineering uh, stuff for things like semiconductor fabs. And that means immigration. That means we're going to have to import those people. Right. So so this is something maybe people who are more right wing tell me is that, you know, essentially that especially if, you know, especially the more smarter ones, as they say, you know, they, they agree with the kind of Tyler Cowen case that it's just becoming increasingly more competitive, that there's increasingly few people who actually want to come here, even if we want to import the specialized talent. Um, certainly, this is true of semiconductors, I think, um, even if we want to special uh, to import the specialized talent it's not necessarily like people aren't necessarily going to want to want to uh, come right away. Uh, how do you actually increase that domestic capacity at home? Right. Of course we can have people uh, come over and try to tra- and try to train, try to create, you know, internship programs essentially. And uh, that's a part of it, but, but is there anything else that we can do to essentially try to avoid this kind of, you know, software curse or finance curse? Oh, there is, there is plenty of stuff in terms of training, um, you know, the idea of instead of getting immigrants here, we've got to train our own domestic people. That's a ridiculous sort of juxtaposition because, you, in fact, you have to do both. Sure, yeah. You won't be able to get enough immigrants to staff the entire like semiconductor manufacturing workforce or battery manufacturing workforce. It just you yeah, can't exactly. get enough. There are not enough. There will not happen. Uh, so you've got to train you know people locally. But at the same time, if you just try to train people locally, like how are they going to do it? Are you going to just, uh, you know, is is are you just going to read a book called like how to work in a semiconductor fab? No, you got it. Like this knowledge is tacit knowledge, which is why China hasn't stolen it all yet. Right. Uh, that's the only reason they haven't stolen it all is because this knowledge is contained in distributed form in the heads of a million engineers at places like TSMC and at Samsung. And if you're going to get that knowledge here, you've got to get it from the people. You're not going to get it by cracking open a book. Um, you know, books can teach you physics. They can teach you the basics of engineering, but they won't be able to teach you, you know, the, the, uh, all the specialized stuff. Um, you'll need people right, to teach you that. It's a very embodied kind of manufacturing. It's really embodied, and it's it's tacit knowledge. You know, you, like oh, I calibrate this thing this way, and then it just it just works. You know, or I we we need to use this kind of little material in this, um, and then it just works. Or like here's how we have to stagger the production processes, or or you know, a, a million different little things. Right, uh, tacit knowledge. This is called, and you don't even know what you know. Like, uh, it's not even known what makes the things work because the the engineers don't write down and report all these little tricks to their bosses. Not least because that would make it easier to replace them, but also just because they don't think to. There's no there's no process for that. We have no way of systematizing tacit knowledge, and so you learn from the people who know how to do it, right? And um, and so uh, and so we've got to. Like, you know, saying that instead we should block out immigrants and just train our own people just, uh, you know, reveals a a startling, absolutely breathtaking level of ignorance about how training and knowledge actually work. Yeah. So so I think related to this, right, we we kind of looked at or you mentioned you you mentioned the, uh, the the attraction of software and finance. I think Peter Thiel called this something like a tech curse, right? that there's essentially this attraction towards uh, towards these areas that he and many others, you know, across the political spectrum view as maybe less productive, uh, even though they might be very rewarding to the individual. 
first of all, do you do you agree with the framing? Do you, do you think that these are indeed less productive? And second of all, if, if so, uh, how do we solve it? The, which are less productive? I'm sorry. Tech and finance. So, oh, tech so and finance. We have all these yeah, like, high talent people. We have all these like, high, high talented people. They're going into tech and finance instead of uh, instead of hardware manufacturing or something like that. Hardware engineering. Uh, well, no. Is, I mean, is that is that good? And is that um, and if it's not good, then how do we avoid it? Finance, yes. Software, no. So um, uh, basically, let's talk about software really quick. Uh, Japan had a ton of great electrical engineers and a bunch of great, you know, bun- massive amounts of tacit knowledge. All their companies fell behind in part because they were really, really bad at software. Um, they instead of using, you know, open source solutions and writing, their, you know, their own standards that other people could use and all the stuff that we did. Um, Japanese companies went entirely with proprietary firmware that they didn't let anyone else see and that and, you know, they didn't buy stuff from other people either. And so because of that, Japanese companies got very isolated. Uh, in terms of what they were able to do. And um, you've seen Japan lose out in industry after industry and lack of software ability is one reason. Um, Software, you know, design software for chips is still one important place where America, you know, controls sort of the choke points of the global semiconductor industry. So software is complementary to high, uh, you know, to high-tech manufacturing. In addition, there's lots of software that's absolutely critical to global infrastructure. Um, And there's AI, right? I mean, like all the software people are going into AI now, at least at the margin. And... um, and AI is going to be extremely important, both, you know, for technology in, in ways that we can barely imagine for optimizing production processes, for, for making weapons, for inventing new stuff. It's just going to be really important. And so software, there's this idea that everyone who goes into software is just like making ad tech for, you know, Facebook and, and just doing like useless stuff like that. And I feel like in the 2010s, there was a little bit of that. There were too many people piling into all these like consumer internet companies and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but that's, you know, Xi Jinping made a giant mistake when he decided that he could crush the consumer internet companies and then engineers would sort of squirt out the other end into high-tech manufacturing like toothpaste from a tube when you stomp on one end of it, right? He, he sort yeah, of thought yeah, that. Yeah, this is something, yeah, I, I completely agree. I've been saying this for a while now, actually. It, it's just like a complete L for Chinese industrial policy that machine learning took off the way it did. Right. And you scared everyone out of software right as the LLM revolution happened. Like, great job, guys. Right. It, it is this It is this very funny t- twist of fate. Um, but I guess this leads right into uh, one of maybe our areas of disagreement. Uh, you, you wrote this article about... Um, you, you wrote this article about essentially hedging, hedging the risks of AI or hedging the risks of automation... Uh, and here we we mean risks as in kind of like economic risks. Uh, you said that you wanted to to increase union power. You want to essentially give people more more options to kind of decide for themselves if uh, when that technology eventually becomes involved in their jobs. Uh, so, so do you want to just make that case? Actually, do you want to just make that case to all of the listeners? Which case? Sorry. Uh, the, the case for strengthening local power. Um, just, just summarize the article that you already had on uh, wait on this unions. local power. But I but I'm against local power, like in terms of you know like local regulation, local like voice about building stuff. Oh, sorry, that that's just a mis a misstatement on my part. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Um, I, I'm looking for uh, it's a uh, it's the article that's why why trying to shape AI innovation to protect workers oh. is a bad idea, right? I, I mean, like right. unions. Um, I forget what else. Um, I just have very brief notes on this article, but yeah. Right. Oh, so, um, I guess 
I, I'm I'm pretty uh, I, I agree with Tyler a lot on this one. Um, so basically, the 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 new meme that's sort of developing, and which is the the chief champion of this, is the economist Daron Asimoglu, um, who is sort of the the most you know important economist in the world. I guess he's he publishes more top journal papers than anyone else, and he's just this amazing powerhouse. He's come out with a book saying we've got to shape the the shape what kinds of AI we create. We've got to make sure that we, we've got to create AI tools that complement workers instead of AI tools that replace them. Well, okay, that sounds nice on paper, but how the hell do you do it? There's <laughs> yeah. just, you know, how do you predict which kind of, of tools are labor replacing and which are labor augmenting before they exist and before business people learn how to actually use them in their production processes and business models. Like how the hell do you do that? You can't. And, and in fact, an object lesson here is Asimoglu's own research. So Asimoglu wrote this paper with Pascal Restrepo a few years ago, maybe um, 2017 or 2018. I don't remember. Right. Is this the radiologist um, paper? No, it's not the radiologist paper. It is the uh, industrial robots paper. So they looked at company level data and they said, okay, so the companies that, use more industrial robots, uh, hire fewer workers, right? It's, it's job destroying. This many jobs have been destroyed by industrial robots. And then this, this finding made its way into the pages of the New York Times. It made it all the way around the world. And then about seven or eight other research teams went and looked at this and they got better, you know, cleaner data sets and longer time periods and better, you know, uh, more expansive definitions of robots and um, they used better instruments so they could, you know, test for endogeneity and blah, 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 blah. And they all found exactly the opposite of what Asimoglu and Restrepo found. They found that companies that used more industrial robots hired more people, right? And so they hired more people. And so then the Asimoglu and Restrepo and the people who were worried about the industrial robots, they said, okay, so maybe the company, all right, fine, maybe we were wrong about that. Um, you know, so and and Asimoglu himself did another paper, which actually updated his old finding, and now found yes, companies that use more industrial robots hire more humans as well. So, but then they sort of of uh, moved the goalposts a bit, and they were like, okay, so guess what? Uh, maybe companies that use more robots hire more humans, but it's because they're expanding, and they're expanding at the expense of the companies that lost out in the in the effort to roboticize, right? And so. Uh, ultimately jobs are being destroyed, just not at the actual companies that use the robots themselves. Those companies are expanding so fast at the expense of other companies, it's destroying jobs elsewhere. So then other re- a bunch of researchers went and looked at industry-level uh, effects, right? And they found that industries, you know, if you uh, use like the NAICS codes or however you want to define an industry, if they, they looked at industries that use more robots and they found that those two were... Uh, you know, adding jobs faster than in, than other industries. And so then the, the people said, okay, well, fine. Maybe the <laughs> industries are expanding that use robots, but they're expanding at the expense of other industries. And so jobs are being oh, destroyed come on. At, yeah. at the national level. No, I'm serious. This is this was yeah. the argument. And so then and so then you look at the national level and the countries with the most industrial robots are places like South Korea and Germany and Singapore. And tell me those those places have like mass unemployment. They don't. Right. It's very interesting. I do think, you know, I do think for most observers, maybe there aren't that many neutral observers, but if you're a neutral observer, this should really change your mind, right? 
that that that's kind of iterative at, at every step you know at every step along the argument you should kind of shift a little bit yeah so yeah. so and so i guess what i'm saying yeah. i guess when I, to to finish my my line of thought there Asimoglu, who's saying we need to we need to promote this type of technology that augments workers and and tax or or discourage the type of technology that replaces workers he has a demonstrated inability to know which kind is which right and and the whole all the ideas like the radiology thing that you mentioned is just another example uh, that was that wasn't an economist that was actually an ai researcher that was jeffrey hinton who said in in um you know, five, five years, radiologists will all be out of a job. And seven years later, radio, there's more job openings for human radiologists than ever. And they're getting paid more than ever. There's this massive shortage of radiologists and the pay is just skyrocketing. And so like, that was a spectacularly wrong prediction about the specifics of which type of labor AI would replace. Now, I'm not saying AI won't replace anyone's job. I think every technological boom sees the destruction of certain kinds of occupations. The internet killed encyclopedia salespeople, term life insurance salesmen, and travel agents, right? Mostly. And um, it, it mostly killed those things. But you know what? It didn't kill jobs overall. Um, and we just don't know. You know, it, it is absolute hubris to think that we can look at a technology before it's even invented and predict whether it will be labor augmenting or you know, labor, uh, uh, destroying. I, I just think we can't know. Yeah, I agree. It, it does seem like, it, it does seem like, especially some of the more, more confident predictions were just blown out of the water. We're seeing now, uh, we're seeing now, you know, there's very little progress on self-driving cars. There's, there's relatively little progress on vision. However, I mean, vision is already pretty high quality, but in terms of the types of problems that you're trying to solve with self-driving cars, right? Uh, at the same time, you see this immense progress in language models that actually, I think like the insider, you know, the insider kind of like machine learning engineers, they were telling me about language models for a while. They were pretty confident on those. But, you know, the, the Noam Chomsky types, you know, they're, they're still in denial. Uh, it turns <laughs> right. out many of the people who are trying to forecast language models from the outside were very much um underestimating it yeah i, I do think huh. these things are very high variance and they're sort of you know they're, they're sort of just random even the kind of technological adoption or the kind of technological developments who is using these technologies who is just like applying them in straightforward and predictable ways that's also itself pseudo random you know you, you might have just one role that just gets much more exposure because of a single entrepreneur and that single entrepreneur you know could have done could have done a completely different role could have looked at a different kind of b2b arbitrage and decide to apply machine learning technology there and just didn't right right or, or someone else tried and for some kind of you know either the reasons of their team or of of the funding for some reasons they just you know they, they just failed and yeah, I do think it's very, it's, it's highly variable. It's sort of random and unpredictable. I agree with you. Uh, so, so what's the implication here, right? What's the implication for someone who kind of cares about social welfare, who is very worried, you know, that this might create automation, this might create at least temporary instability in job markets. What, what's the policy implication? Oh, well, so the policy implication is that we've got to, we've got to do things that, uh, that make our society robust. We've got to robustify ourselves. That is a word I just invented um, against uh, the possibility of various disruptions. We know that even if jobs are created on net, certain people who have high value occupations will see their whole livelihoods and their human capital devalued. And you saw this with industrial technology. You saw experienced weavers, their, you know, their wages went down 
forever, you know, <laughs> like, um, right, even right. though we had much better textiles and ultimately a lot more people made a lot more money in the textile industry, the world became a richer place. Uh, some of these people just were shit out of luck, right? And um, and so we know there's going to be disruptions, even if the overall effect is positive and worker and labor augmenting. And so we've got to sort of prepare for those disruptions. And I think one way to prepare for those disruptions is to have, you know, a better welfare state so that um, so that, the, the you know, if you lose your job, I mean, obviously, if you lose a very high paying job and you have to go on welfare, that's still a really bad outcome for you. But it's it's a lot better than losing your high paying job, losing your low paying job and being on the street. So we, to protect the most vulnerable workers, a welfare state helps a lot, right? Because it help, you know we're we're starting to learn. I, I think evidence is starting to find that uh, things like cash benefits don't stop people from working. In fact, they give people a boost that helps them get back on their feet. Um, it, it is you know the the Danish system of flex security has been extremely effective, and um, you know uh, basically we help you find a new job and we give you cash you know, also. And so like, that's great. You know, that's, that's really great. The, also the, the idea of portable, uh, portable pensions and healthcare and job benefits and those things are, we're really behind the times on this. We need to do those things. We need to basically make a flex security system to help people, uh, get back on their feet quickly. Uh, if you know, technology does, does destroy their job. Um, yeah, it does seem like this kind of good hearts law thing that happened, where there was this ideal of kind of, you know, the company man and lifelong benefits. And then we made that, we made that a part of the actual kind of, you know, 401k savings, for example, we made that a systematic part of, uh, of welfare policy. And then, you know, you, you create the metric, you have, you're going to have people who exploit the metric. And now you just have, uh, for, first of all, I, th- I do think there's a kind of natural trend in this direction as well with kind of technology, but also you have this added incentive to basically move away from having the company man to create these kind of, you know, ever-changing and, and frequently horizontal changes in employment that end up, you know, that, that end up basically contra- contrasting and I think in the AI age, certainly, um, really making people much more insecure than they need to be. So, 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 so yeah, I, I, I generally agree with that. This is very good. This is a very good column. I think I have, you know, most of my listeners are more libertarian. They, they don't want to, you know, they, they don't necessarily want to, they're kind of wary, right? They, they take the Peter Thiel line of like, okay, maybe if we get transformative AI, then maybe this is a good idea. But, um, but in the short right. term, I, I'm not, you know. Notice yeah. that I'm not making the Andrew Yang argument of humans are going to be obsolete, therefore we need UBI, right? I don't think we'll be able to get to that. And I don't think we're going to need it either. I'm talking about a Danish flex security system to help people transition to new kinds of jobs instead of a UBI to replace people because I think people are going to just become obsolete en masse. Yeah, I I do think, yeah, I do believe in a kind of Ricardian efficiency where people will find, you know, people will find some kind of comparative advantage and they'll find something to do. Uh, Yeah, I generally agree with that. But I do think, yeah, I, I do think at this point we can be more optimistic. We can be... I think I think it was Sam Oberia who, who he was talking about. Uh, he was on this podcast actually talking about Bismarck and talking about um, like Bismarck himself, uh, the man uh, Otto von Bismarck, looking over you know looking over what was what was essentially pre-Germany, um, the Prussian Empire, and saying you know there's this transformative industry 
and being, you know, essentially a conservative, essentially a monarchist and saying, you know, if there's going to be such shifting change, there has to be, you know, there has to be something to restore a sense of security. And, and I do think something, I do think that's something that like libertarians underestimate. I do think like, if not, if not like actual instability, a sense of instability will certainly occur. There will definitely be people who maybe you know, who, who like genuinely feel or who genuinely experience a kind of economic turmoil. And that, you know, even if that's that's some fraction of the population and that, you know, there, there's much greater, you know, there's much greater innovation and much greater increase in productivity, like that, that kind of thing does tend to spiral out of control and create essentially political turmoil. So, so yeah, I do think it's very important to have, you know, to, to have, Honestly, like your column, like I, I know a lot of uh, mutual friends, libertarians who kind of read your who, who reads your blog as well. So, so it's very nice to have this article out there. Right. And so, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when you look at the Industrial uh, Revolution and how that eventually turned out for the world. Right. We all love the hockey stick graph of prosperity. Right. If yeah, you're a, yeah. <laughs> every every neoliberal shill like me will love to just post this hockey stick of how awesome things were for humans. Right. And then when the when the Marxists come on and they say, oh, but inequality is just a few people getting rich at the expense of everyone else. We can point to very broad based things like health and, you know, child mortality and education levels and clean drinking water and every every sort of like good thing that makes things good for the majority of people. Right. Not just for a few like, you know. Um, super rich John D. Rockefeller types, right? And yeah. so um, the fact that we got that, 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 that that was so broad-based did not happen accidentally, right? We have seen a massive expansion in the role of the state, both in providing public goods and in, you know, um, uh, redistribution, things like that, uh, in, including in the United States. We've seen that Everywhere, really, including in Singapore, too, which is often held up as the bastion of libertarianism. And yet, you know, it's <laughs> all the entire housing system. And like, yeah, yeah. Very. You know, so, right. And so, yes, they're 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 they're, you know, they're FIMBY, right? The public housing yeah. in my backyard. They're, they're Singapore just like is like, OK, government owns this one and we're going to do it all ourselves. And like it, it really works. Um, but it's not libertarian. And um Right. So, I, I've had Garrett on the show, you know, everyone, you know, talking about 10% less democracy. Yeah, my audience is pretty familiar with with, uh, with that. Yeah, Singapore is not a, is a high state capacity place. Let's put it that way. It is a high state capacity place. Yes. And so, um, and so, yeah, so, so, you know, of course, it has an advantage being a city state, right? Like, it's yeah. easier to be a high state capacity place when you're a tiny little city, right? Than when you're a... Uh, uh, I'm not saying it's automatic, right? Like, I don't think that San, San Francisco is a tiny little city. It's not governed well. But, you know, you've got a lot more alignment among the interests. You don't have as many regional interests. You don't have, you know. Um, anyway, you just got a lot more alignment with the city. But but Singapore does a lot of shit really, really well. And, um, yeah, so so I think that's sort of... Um, that the, the story here is that we got to broadly shared prosperity with the help of government. You know, it wasn't just government waves its hands and says, there shall be prosperity. That doesn't work, right? Um, Soviet Union tried that. A bunch of people tried that. That doesn't work. Um, but it's also not true that you can just wave your hand and say, the market shall bring prosperity. And then the market 
you know, everybody just buys and sells and we get this glorious like outcome in the market where everybody is rich. Like that didn't happen either. That didn't happen anywhere. And um, like nowhere on this earth did that happen. And, um, and so really what you've got to look at is the mixed economy. The mixed economy is just, is the best thing. And of course we can argue and argue and argue about how best to mix it what kind of welfare state we should have, what kind of industrial policy we should have, all these kind of things about, you know, what kind of this and that should we have? And that those are good arguments. Those are important arguments. And, you know, some models of development are better than others. And I think, uh, and, and, and many are better in different ways. But the idea of the mixed economy has has won. I would say that, that that has won. It has triumphed. Like if you say that the mixed economy isn't best right now, you're going to get a weird look and you're going to have a very high burden of proof. Okay. Yeah, as opposed to what, like anarcho-capitalism, you know, like yes, exactly. Yeah, all the, the all the yeah, like, like the mix. <laughs> yes, sorry. All on. the ideas that people came up with in the 20th century, like like they all, none of them succeeded in their extreme forms. What succeeded was an amalgamation of cobbled together ideas from all of those, right? And so yeah. we need to we need to enter a new era where instead of ideology, where instead of you know writing a big famous book saying this is how government and the economy should interact, blah, 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 buy my book, start, you know, join my movement, march in my march, which is the 20th century way. That's out. That's done. I think we need to instead cobble together things that work, cross the river by feeling the stones. I think ultimately, ultimately the true, uh, you know, economic like policy, the, the, the great man of economic policy of the 20th century is going to turn out to be, um, well, well, two of them, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Deng Xiaoping. Those are the two big winners, right? Um, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who basically just was a complete opportunist in terms of economic policy. He did some industrial policy. He did some neoliberal stuff. He did some socialist looking stuff. He did some like crony capitalism. He did like a, he pulled from every tradition, right? He did some welfare state, um, Etc. He pulled from he pulled eclectically from every tradition and built the United States into the greatest industrial and economic powerhouse of the 20th century. Whereas Deng Xiaoping did something similar, and his and his handpicked successors, right, uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, um, Deng Xiaoping and his boys, uh, you know, did something similar in China, where they just basically cobbled stuff together. And the two, you know, the the two famous quotes. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, we need bold, persistent experimentation. And Deng Xiaoping said, who cares if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice? I think those two quotes together uh, define what ended up working in the 20th century. And everything else ended up failing other than that. Yeah, it, it does seem like, I don't know, on, on the empirics, I agree with you. On the, you know, it, it does seem like history is indeed over. And everything, every kind of like plot event in world history just just makes me feel like history is indeed even more over than we thought it was before like that's also the lesson of the ukraine war right richard hanania had this uh, had this very funny column or it, it was funny because he was kind of like a ukraine doomer right he, he thought that russia was just going to win and then it didn't and then he changed his mind and he said history is over uh fukuyama was right and uh, yeah. <laughs> well i don't know i mean like um you know, I was one of the main people who who argued vociferously against Hanania uh, in in those days when he was a doomer. But um, but yeah, so I think history, in terms of you know the the rise and fall of nations, the evolution of institutions, technology changing things, is absolutely not over. Um, 
in, in the broader sense, all the things we call history are not really over. And Fukuyama was kind of being a troll to put it that way. And Fukuyama knows, you know, he knows what's going on. He was making fun of the 20th century people who thought, especially Marxists, who thought that the grand sweep of history would result in the, you know, this perfect communist economic system being developed, blah, blah. blah. And he was like, nope, guess what? That didn't happen. So when he, when he said history, it was an explicit reference to the thing that Marxists called history, which we almost yeah. don't even remember anymore because the Marxists are literally history. So <laughs> um, reduced to sort of tanky trolling on Twitter. That's like the best they can do right now. And um, and so, yeah, like so. So but what I think uh, the the we're shifting away from an era of grand sweeping ideologies about the relationship between the state and the economy. Um, toward an era of pragmatism and uh, eclectic institutions. I think that is good. That is a needed, important shift. Um, and in that sense, history is over, uh, at least for now, right? We may, there may be another revolution in 100 years, 200 years, I don't know, where everybody gets really, really interested in these grand sweeping theories again. We have another another era of grand sweeping theory. Maybe it'll happen, but not for a while. Yeah, it it is interesting. I I do think you you did say you you weren't in favor of uh, UBI, but to me that there's a there there's a problem in political economy, which is basically um, which is basically that programs that form constituencies, and and here I don't mean constituencies as in like the public. Here I mean like. Um, you know, bureaucrats, people, people directly employed by the government, you know, concentrated minorities, as they say, um, as the political economy people say, um, that, that programs that form those types of, of um, concentrated constituencies tend to outlive programs that programs that don't do that, right? So, so we saw an experimentation with cash relief, you know, some people right. said it was the wrong, wrong uh, time to experiment with that, you know, that, that, that it's inflationary. Um, to, to me, it's just still like, it, it's very nice to me whenever there, there is a kind of like transcendence of political economy where, where the system is, of essentially value capture is kind of bypassed. And to me, that, that looked like one such opportunity. Uh, it, it does seem like, to me at least, it does seem like in the long-term development of kind of uh, welfare that you get an increasing concentration in you know essentially these self-creating um the the self-creating constituencies and and i'm wondering if you have you know you talked about the you talked about the danish system i think yeah i I think that europe tends to do this much you know europe tends to succumb to this problem less so uh than the united states but do you think that there's any kind of solution to be innovated on something like that oh yeah um i mean Absolutely. But, but first of all, I'd say that um, I'm not entirely sure that that's how the welfare state evolves. I think that oh, uh, it's, that's much better description of how the regulatory state evolves. If oh, you yes, look I at completely how- agree, agree here too. See, see, the reason why I didn't ask this about the regulatory state is that to me, like the FDA just shouldn't exist, right? Like the FDA <laughs> just killed a lot of people by banning COVID vaccines. <laughs> um, whereas I do think the welfare state should exist in some form. You're basically Alex Tabrock with laser eyes now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, hopefully, I, hopefully he'll come on this show one day. Oh my gosh. Um, right. I mean, Tyler's been on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, no, Alex is, Alex is great. Tyler's great too. 
Um, those, those guys together have been the foremost intellectuals who are transforming the old libertarianism into something that makes sense for the 21st century. Right. State capacity libertarianism. Yeah. It's right. been, it's been very interesting to watch. I love those guys. They're doing and while while Cato is just basically fighting this, like, you know, sort of desperate rear guard action to defend the 20th century stuff. Like marginal revolution guys are like, I have now reinvented libertarianism. And, um, <laughs> like Cato is uh, like fighting MAGA populists, right? Um, and maybe they the should be. But... I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little. Reveal a little secret. It's not a secret. It's been a discussion that I had. I, I won't name names, but um, I had a discussion with a you know a ideological libertarian who was bemoaning Tyler Cowen's heterodoxy, and he said a bunch of people thought that Tyler would be the next Murray Rothbard, but they were wrong. He's so disappointing, and I was like, guy. Tyler Cowen will be far more influential and in a much more positive way as well than Murray Rothbard ever was. Murray Rothbard simply took other people's ideas and sort of took them to illogical extremes. Tyler Cowen will reinvent stuff and is just like, it, that's an insulting, that, that comparison is highly insulting to Tyler. Yeah, it, it's funny, like all of the, all of the Austrian stuff, I, I take like the negative Austrian stuff much more seriously than the positive Austrian stuff, right? The negative Austrian stuff I consider as in, you know, like people should be more, people should be more hesitant when they're considering essentially like central planning. People should um, be more hesitant of, of kind of like philosophical, uh, philosophical security as well, right? They, they should be thinking of, you know, like the, these are things that are essentially emergent. You know, Tyler's, Tyler uh, calls this like a Straussian belief, right? Looking at these institutions as essentially emergent. And then like the positive stuff just just like discards that it says like, but but what if we were to take these kind of like philosophical uh, principles of, uh, of kind of property rights and go like very far with it? It's like, th- there is a bit of a contradiction here, you know? Uh, right. Yeah, but, but yeah, so so I think no no, so I, what I was saying is I think um to go back to what you're talking about before, I think we've seen the welfare state evolve toward more simplicity in the United Has, States. Have we? Okay, that's yeah. interesting. How so? Because we've seen basically a few programs come to dominate. We've seen the EITC and CTC, uh you know, the the so-called trapezoid cash programs. Um those uh because of the shape of the benefits curve those um, those programs have come to dominate, um, you know, cash benefits taking over from the old sort of welfare system, uh, and then the um, and then we give out food stamps and we give out uh, you know Medicaid and we give out housing vouchers for the three basic like commodities, uh, you know, like uh, food, shelter, and, and healthcare. You know, and so that right. that's not as simple as a system where we just gave people cash and let them buy whatever they wanted. You know, the sort of like dream system of the of the you know, cash. Yeah, benefit, not UBI just, people. you know, Yang UBI. It's not Yang, but it's like, but it's a hell of a lot simpler than like, you know, a, a patchwork of targeted programs. Um, and part of that is because of the federalization of the welfare state, because the federal government tends to have pretty simple, big programs, while local governments tend to be captured by local interests. Um, and so the, the federalization of the welfare state, I think, has helped simplify it. And we, we, you know, we made a lot of progress there. And people who think that our welfare state is this horrifically complex hodgepodge that needs to be turned into a UBI, well, I mean, like, they're a little behind the times because, like, we sort of already did that halfway. And it's pretty, it's pretty simplified. If you, it's when you look at the regulatory state that you see all these little carve-outs. You see, like, carve-outs, anyone, you know, 
prohibitions on car dealer on direct um, direct sales of cars to protect car dealers. Right. Except for Tesla. They did a carve out for Tesla specifically um, in Florida. This is DeSantis's thing. So that kind oh, of interesting. Yeah, that was it was yeah. like, OK, well, I know, you know, Tesla does direct sales and, and Elon Musk has, has said nice things about me on Twitter. Uh, so therefore, I'm going to carve out Tesla. But every other, you know, GM and Ford and whatever, you have to go through car dealers. And uh, and that's just a horrible, like the most obvious crony capitalist law, clientelist bullshit to protect, you know, a, a favored Republican micro constituency. And that kind of thing you see, um, you know, you can make, you know, you, you can make like progressives will make lots of arguments like, OK, we have this and this thing for like black owned businesses. And, and that's important because that's how we we, uh, you know, do um racial equality and stuff. And you can make arguments for that, but, but it is undeniable that regulatory stuff uh, has a shit ton of carve outs, carve outs for unions, carve outs for, uh, you know, sort of um, ethnic stuff, carve outs for specific occupations, carve outs for this and that it's all the regulatory state. So I would say that this, this sort of, um, and I think it's a Mansur Olson argument, ultimately the idea that, that, that our state tends, that state intervention tends toward, um, you know, favoring specific groups. I would say that is much more a problem of regulation than welfare, at least in America and probably in most places too. So when we look at regulation, when, when, when if you want to curb the role of the state, the harmful role of the state, you've got to look at regulation. And I think that this is the big good thing that's happening in libertarianism right now. Libertarians are waking up and saying, okay, so focusing on tax cuts and, you know, is a little pointless and focusing on soaking the welfare state is probably not going to work um, and uh, and may also be pointless as well. Instead, let's go back to this idea of deregulation. And I think that was the part of libertarianism that got dropped, right? Uh, because early on, you had Jimmy Carter deregulating transport and energy, uh, right? You had You had Reagan sort of not doing a lot of explicit deregulation, but sort of weakening regulation enforcement with some of the people he appointed. And then you had the so the second, and, and that, that all worked fine, you know, like that, that went fine. Our economy was overregulated in the seventies. And then you had a uh, very stupid financial deregulation in the nineties. You just, we, 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 we decided to do this, this Margaret Thatcher thing where we were going to like shift to being a finance country, right? Oh, look how much money finance makes. Let's encourage more of it. Yay. That's what we'll specialize in. Right. And so we deregulated finance. We had a pro-finance industrial policy. And That's a very funny way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And we and that sort of deregulation just, you know, that didn't that didn't really work. We had a financial crisis because we did the wrong kind of deregulation. We dere we we preferentially deregulated the finance industry and created a pro-finance industrial policy with that. And that was dumb. And now, and after that, appetite for deregulation disappeared for a decade because people were like, okay, deregulation caused the crisis. Let's not do any of it. And deregulator became a dirty word. But now with the, with the rebirth of industrial policy, everyone is starting to realize that regulation will kill industrial policy, that NEPA will kill it, that various other regulations will just, will just slaughter it, that everything bagel liberalism that Ezra Klein talks about. And um, the problem is, progressive political coalitions and political organizing are not set up to fight against the everything bagel. And yeah, I, I do think there is a kind of political economy problem. Like it, it's very funny because I agree with, I'm very happy, you know, I shouldn't be 
you know, discouraging of Ezra Klein moving in this direction, right? Moving towards the Yimby kind of like, uh, what does he call it again? Supply side liberalism, right? But at the same time, I don't think he's kind of really looked at the consequences or the root cause of this. He had uh, he had someone on his podcast recently where he was talking about kind of like giving more people a voice. And I think, you know, the, the, the downstream lesson of supply side liberalism uh, or of state capacity libertarianism should be, you know, it should be the Garrett Jones case, right? It should be that actually, you know, these semi-elite institutions these kind of like appointed, you know, sheltered from democracy or like indirect democracy positions like the Fed or like these or like European transportation commissions, as opposed to like something like NEPA is just better, right? That that actually you want people to have like a bit less of a voice, you know, that, that they should be, you know, maybe they should they should still have elections, you know, we should still have elections right. every four years. But that there should be more of a there should be more of a role given to technical experts in that case. Right. When 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 someone says 10 percent less democracy. Everyone instantly thinks dictator, because that's why that's that was a really terrible phrase to pick. By the way, the ten percent less democracy. What you what, don't because everyone's going to think ten percent less democracy just means you know we're going to take away some of people's rights. We're going to let people vote less. We're going to decrease the number of people who can vote. We're going to increase the power of the executive so the executive can order people around. Blah blah blah. Those are bad ideas. Um, what we need to do is turn over more things to technocratic bureaucrats, to the civil service, to the state. Um, that is the 10%, 10% more bureaucracy. Let's 10% go. more bureaucracy. You say that and all the all the libertarians, and suddenly you just went from right-coded to left-coded, right? But it's the same That's thing. Yeah. Look at Singapore. Look at Japan. Look at Korea. It's the same thing. Like, that's yeah, what we that's, need. That's we need funny. an administrative yeah. state to take over from the the sort of, like, you know, like legalist progressive you know sue everyone into oblivion for local like limousine liberal hippie homeowners state <laughs> we you know we need the bureaucrats to say no i'm sorry you know ex hippie with a you know 5 million dollar house we are building a solar plant where you can see it from your window and i'm sorry if you don't like looking at the solar plant but guess what something's more important than that so suck it yeah this is great this Right. I do think, I don't know, this is something that I worry about on, I don't know, maybe it's not my role to be worrying about the left. You know, maybe that's kind of well beyond my, my sphere of influence. But this is something I worry about. There, there does seem to be a kind of push. I'm not sure how realistic this is, actually. There, there does seem to be more of a push towards um, what's... Um, I'm kind of blanking on who described it. Oh, what what Lyman Stone described as a kind of like, uh, as a kind of like Protestant liberalism, right? Of a kind of like, you know, we, we want people to have a voice for the sake of them having a voice. And if that means like obstructing, you know, if that means obstructing public transit, if that means obstructing, you know, so solar panels, clean energy, then that's basically fine. I, I do think that there, that, from from the outside, it appears that that's that's kind of on the rise among the public. I don't. Uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, on the rise among elites. Probably not. Um, if Ezra Klein is any indication, but um, f- first of all, do you see that as a kind of presence? Uh, th- that's the first question I should ask. Yeah, absolutely, I do. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, is it increasing, decreasing? I think it's increasing. I I think uh, yeah, I think that we're in a um, we're in a good place on that. 
Right. Sorry, which which part do you mean is increasing? Oh, I mean, um, you know, just the the basically the sort of stuff we we're talking about. Um, oh, okay, so so like the Ezra Klein, the Ezra Kleinism is increasing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I don't that, think yeah, there's okay. A, that's good. Yeah, I think um, you see you see a pushback where where you're seeing a pushback against that is not even a very big pushback. So Todd Tucker, who's a friend of mine, and you know he's a Roosevelt Institute guy. You know, he and the Roosevelt Institute people. Uh, and Heather Boucher. These are these are friends of mine. They're good people. Um, they're the progressive industrial policy people. And because they're used to building progressive political coalitions, they are really they don't want to give up the everything bagel. Right. They want to take mm. they want to have they want to have this giant money flood be this thing that pulls all their constituencies up and pulls them all. along. And they just can't do that because the the things cost too much. It's impossible to pull the people to pull all the people along because stuff costs too much. And you've got to make choices about, you know, how to how to rearrange the system so that things don't cost so much. So you're not spending like untold billions of dollars on one subway extension in New York, you know, so that we're not getting solar panels all blocked by NEPA and transmissions uh, lines blocked by NEPA there that those people are resisting heavily and making arguments that NEPA is fine as is. Everything's fine as is. It's not. And they're going to lose the argument. And I think that they are steadily starting to lose the argument, although they have a lot of incumbent advantage because they are, you know, they have these political coalitions. But in the end, they will shift. Their thinking will shift. Right. Industrial policy will matter more to them than uh, than, you know, preserving all our old approaches untouched. But at the same time, we need uh, we need conservatives to start coming up with their own ideas of industrial policy. That's what we really need at this point. Um, and so that's what made, so what really made neoliberalism work in the old days was that Bill Clinton came along and, and Barack Obama later, but Bill Clinton came along and created a liberal alternative to, you know, version of neoliberalism, right? It, that instead of this just like slash government, slash regulation or slash uh, taxes, I mean, you know, slash the welfare state, uh, you know, which was which loosely the the sort of more Reaganist approach. Clinton is like, okay, so you know, yeah, we'll slash that stuff, but we're going to replace it with these cash benefits. We're going to have EITC. We're going to have CTC. You know, instead of like the old welfare system. Um, you know, Clinton. You know, and and then Bush came in uh, talking about compassionate conservatism. He did that in response to Clinton because Clinton was like, okay, so we're going to help poor people. You know, we're going to make incentives for investment in poor communities. Clinton's empowerment zone program was a great success. And, you know, it was the most successful uh, such place-based investment program that we've ever seen. Um, and it's one that many people have try, sort of tried, like, hope to, to emulate since. Um, and so Clinton came in and did all these things and really owned neoliberalism, made, made a liberal form of neoliberalism that competed with the conservative form. And everyone in the end agreed that we needed a simpler welfare state and that, um, you know, we we agreed not to return to like the high tax situation of the seventies or the, or the fifties anyway. And, um, and so, so because there was competition to own the future of neoliberalism, neoliberalism was able to succeed and, and we were able to take sort of the best ideas from both in certain ways. And that's a, that's a pretty Whiggish, you know, sort of positive history of how that went down. And I think that a lot of people will think, oh, it wasn't a success. It was a giant failure. Clinton did the financial deregulation to cause the crisis, inequality, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, sure, you know, can't argue with that. But 
But at the same time, I think it was great to have this two-party competition about who could own the neoliberal age. In the same way, we need a two-party competition on who's going to own industrial policy, right? We need the the Republicans and the conservatives not to just go for zombie Catoism, right? And just like more tax cuts, loot the country, blah, 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 just burn the furniture approach. We can't have that. That's not, that doesn't build a future for our country. We need conservatives to think about how to make a conservative industrial policy. And then the two will compete. The conservatives will want to build stuff in a conservative way. The liberal, the progressives will want to build stuff in a progressive way. And we'll have this rivalry that where they compete to see who can build more stuff. And that will force the progressives to, to abandon the idea of the everything bagel. Right. Yeah. I, I... I think I agree with you on all of the individual claims there, but the kind of grand, you, you know, I'm pretty optimistic for the circles that I'm in, but the kind of like grand theory of change there does seem a little bit too optimistic to me. Um, at least I don't think that's going to happen with industrial policy. I, I do think there's an industrial policy, right? Um, but it's sort of... Um, Even DeSantis you know, the other day There said... are good people, you know, there are good people. DeSantis just hopped on the bus, man. Right? Sorry? DeSantis, he just hopped on the bus. Yeah, I, I do think that there's there's certainly momentum for it. But parts of the industrial policy right are also kind of insane. <laughs> um, yeah, oh no, I mean like the, the Josh Hawley's of the world. Like, you know, these are, uh, you know, on social issues, I'm, I'm really opposed to, to those people. And I think that, even and I, I think that their ideas for industrial policy are probably going to be less smart as well. You know, they would probably be less enthusiastic about green energy stuff, which I think is really important. And um, and uh, yeah, so I think. Yeah, I think that that although I, that doesn't I'm not saying that I'm going to endorse the conservative vision of industrial policy. I'm saying that it's needed in our country. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, like the, the social conservative stuff, I, I, I don't necessarily have the problem with that. It's just their, their proposals for industrial policy. Maybe I read more of this stuff than you do, right? Um, although I wouldn't well, be I've surprised read Orin if you Cass. read a lot of it as well. Who have you been reading uh, like, besides Orrin Cass and his people? Yeah, Orrin Cass, a lot of the stuff in American Affairs. Um, the, hmm. the, I think there was like a Marco Rubio op-ed that was like going along similar lines. It, it, it's just like... A lot of it is just very unaware of the actual underlying problems. Like, like one one good example is kind of Cass. Like, it's not just the immigration restrictionism that we already talked about before, but there there's this kind of idea that like, okay, so, so there's like, there's kind of an idea that there's like already this industrial constituency that's that's just kind of like waiting to do something actually useful. And to me, that this has just never been proven, and nowhere is it proven. Uh, maybe, maybe like the Ezra Klein people do a better job at proving it. Um, funnily enough, but yeah, I think that you know, like one kind of anecdotal microcosm of this is the Foxconn story, right? So essentially, Trump, the Trump administration, subsidized the Foxconn uh, factory. It essentially imploded. They were they they just couldn't staff it. Right. So they just kept people on payroll and basically did nothing. Um, I do think that this is kind of emblematic, right? I I think it is. But I also think it was, you know, um, it was an early sort of first attempt to do something. 
and it, it failed and it was stupid, but it, it taught us lessons, right? We saw that, you know, uh, what we need for, it, it taught us a bunch of things. Number one is that jawboning is not enough. You need to provide support, right? Um, it taught us that picking some random products is not going to work. You need products that make sense with America's comparative advantages. High-tech stuff, basically, not like random electronics assembly. Uh, right. You can't just pick some shit you read in the news. Location matters. You need clustering. Um, you need follow-through and consistency, and you need sort of a, a, a framework in place with for that support. And I think those are all things we learned from the Foxconn debacle, and I'd say that that was a pretty cheap lesson. Um, and it, notice that we didn't, it didn't make a stop. It didn't make us say, oh, well, the Foxconn plant failed. I guess industrial policy just doesn't work. And then, you know, go back to like zombie Catoism or whatever. Like we didn't do that. And that's a good reason we didn't do that because we're smart. Um, we were like, okay, let's, uh, let's do this a little better. Uh, if you look at any successful economic policy shift or program, you see a bunch of first little halting steps. Foxconn thing was also done by Trump, who was, you know, kind of an idiot. And, um, and, uh, you know, did did the best stuff when he would leave things to other people to administer. So basically, the military ended up administering uh, Operation Warp Speed and, and right. BARDA, you know, our effective, the effective parts of our civil service ended up administering it and it worked really well. Um, but then, you know, the Foxconn thing was not administered by anyone. It was just Trump yelling at something. And, you know, it broke an important psychological barrier. I'm going to give Trump credit here for breaking that psychological barrier. For for making us think that we are now a country that does that sort of thing, even if it total, even though it totally failed, it was total waste, it was stupid. Um, but it taught us we it, it it opened our eyes to the fact that we can try to do stuff like that. And Biden's attempts, some of them will fail, and it won't be the perfect thing, and there'll be lots of problems. And um, we will learn from those as well. We'll get better and better. You have to get better and better as you go along. If you look at anything like Dung's privatization campaign, it really failed and sucked at first. Um, but then, you know, it uh, it caused a whole ton of inflation, which probably led to the Tiananmen Square uh, uh, protest. <laughs> yeah, but, but so like it didn't suck, but it had lots of problems. You see, uh, you know, we've got to cross the river by feeling the stones to plot another Deng Xiaoping quote. And, you know, on industrial policy, it will be a learning process. We will discover principles and rules and what we're good at and what we're bad at and roadblocks and bottlenecks. We'll have to overwhelm those bottlenecks with resources and with attention. And it's going to be a learning process. It's going to take us 10 years to learn how to do this at least. That's yeah. my thought. Yeah. But there's no Here, I, I'm like, just very, what, I'm just very suspicious because, because I, I'm very skeptical of this case. You know, I I I should say I I would genuinely hope that this happens. You know, I, I'd definitely be on the side of this happening if if I thought it were plausible. But for, for example, we can just look at the, and I'm not saying that like the political economy of America is the same as China, 
But I do think it's going to head in a similar direction where the political economy of China was basically like, okay, we have all these industrial interests. We're going to subsidize the industrial interests. We're going to, I think like China is going, is going to be much more hostile than the U.S. could ever be, right? Or has already been much more hostile than the U.S. will ever be towards software and towards emerging sectors. But for example, like you were saying, we need to subsidize stuff that America is actually good at. We, we need to look at biotech. We need to look at machine learning. We right. need to look at it at you know for example alternative hardware and machine learning right um right. So, so we have all these areas where they're they're very specific you know they're, they're very like plausible grants that are that are kind of waiting to be written you know like how much of the industrial policy expansion would you bet is going to go to those areas i would say that most likely very little because those are i don't know about biotech mm-hmm. maybe they're maybe no they're no better, that's you know like, that's gonna a lot of that i mean like Right now, the yeah. big pushes toward uh, you know green energy and um, and semiconductors; those are obviously the two highest priority things. Like biotech, super important. Um, it, so the the easiest way to look at what we're going to focus on is to look at Eric Schmidt's uh, project, the uh, the Special Competitive Studies project, and look at their list of things that are important. And you see biotech's uh, on their list, although it's it's not at the top of the list, right? It's somewhere in the middle of the of their list of important things, along with things like quantum computing. Um, and, uh, and fusion and things like that. Um, these are important things, but the, the top priorities are, uh, you know, semiconductors, um, energy and wireless and, um, you know, and, and, and of course, AI, of course, AI is at the top of, of everyone's list right now. So if you talk about, we're not going to spend resources on industrial policy on machine learning. Well, no, we hella are. That's that's one of the top things because everyone is now watching the Ukraine war. Everyone's imagining the future of autonomous like robots sweeping the battlefield of all the enemies, right? Everyone is imagining this future doing you know doing the same thing for the twenty first century. What what sort of uh, you know tank blitzkriegs did in the twentieth, right? It was like the the scariest breakthrough in warfare ever was Hitler's conquest of France. Because suddenly this this relatively new technology of the tank just swept everything before it on the battlefield. You just flooded these tanks around enemy lines and suddenly you could conquer a whole country in a, just a matter of weeks. It was amazing. Um, and that was why Hitler was so scary was because he managed to leverage this new technology like that. Everyone is imagining that moment with autonomous weapon systems. And um, and then, uh, you know, everyone everyone's imagining that. And so we know that that, is going to happen at so or something like that okay is going to happen at some point we know that now and so we need to uh we we know that machine learning and artificial intelligence is at the top of the pile in terms of security so in terms of resources going to ai a lot of resources are going to go to ai that along with i would say that semi and and semiconductors are even ahead of energy actually i would say that AI is a higher priority for industrial policy in terms of what people are thinking about now, even then green energy. Energy costs a lot of money, but AI is, is you know, if, people, if you ask people what are the most important technologies, chips and AI. And to a certain extent, chips, because they're so important to AI, like with NVIDIA. Um, and so, so I wouldn't worry about AI. Not, so biotech is a little uh, is is still very important because right. I actually want to. I, I actually very strongly disagree when it comes to AI. Uh, I think that I, I mean this is my revealed preference, right? I'm moving to DC specifically to you know 
essentially try to prevent crackdown on AI because because the sentiment, you know, from what I from what I observe and from what you know a lot of people I trust of, who are already in DC working on this observe, there's enormous negative sentiment towards AI. The things that the Biden regime is looking at doing right now is like cracking down on AI specifically, going out of their way. This is what Lena Khan explicitly declared in the, in like a public statement. The the sentiment is so negative, and you know maybe we get you know maybe we get some level you know maybe it's a mixed bag. We get some level of kind of industrial policy semiconductors for it, but right now it looks like it's going to be enormously massive, and I think that it's going to be you know like the default the default uh, trajectory here is to be something as devastating as kind of China's great turn inwards. And I, I really, I, I really am pessimistic on this issue. I do think, you know, AI is a kind of technology, especially with its kind of variable nature, you know, uh, it, it's a kind of technology that just, just drives the regulator personality type insane and just creates all of this sort of neuroticism around it. And, and that's not only, you know, that's not only, <laughs> you know, speculation, right? That's literally the actions that are already being taken by uh, existing regulatory agencies, particularly the FTC, which, which is, you know, especially in the most recent iteration, like a particularly a rogue and kind of disastrous thing. But it's also like the, I'm sorry, it, it is just like the broad base, you know, sentiment, uh, particularly among kind of regulatory agencies and staffers right now. Yes, and I, I I completely agree with you. I would say that the AI regulation push is not coming primarily from the industrial policy people, and the industrial policy people are sort of trying to sidestep that. I would say what's happening is everyone's afraid AI is going to take their jobs, and this fear is trans this this Luddite fear, very classic Luddism, is um is translating into a whole bunch of other things. And the people who are like, you know, well, I, I mean, yes, there are the people who are afraid that AI is going to turn into Skynet, and that is a different thing. But I think that a lot of the people who are afraid of like this or that about AI are just really afraid about jobs. Everyone just sort of assumes, even the people making AI assume that its primary function is to replace human labor. And they're all, and the economists think this, and the technologists think this, and the pundits think this, and the politicians think this, and they're all wrong. But we'll have to just see. <laughs> and so, um, uh, so so the overriding, in, in, you're going to have to tell people what they're going to get from AI, what the upside is, right? For industrial technologies, the upside was always you get cheap clothes, you get cheap steel, you get cheap appliances you get cheap vehicles you get cheap houses cheap 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 stuff that everyone can have which means massive massive prosperity high quality cheap good stuff overrode the concerns about the livelihoods of weavers and whoever like luddism never stood a chance in the industrial revolution now with ai what the hell do we get from this like i i can answer that question i can you know um come up with some ideas. But when most people look at how they're, you know, most people in America are already rich, right? We call them, we call them middle-class, but they're really on a global sense. They're absolutely rich people, even in West Virginia. All right. And um, Americans are just so rich and they're looking and thinking, you know, they're not, these are not the poor struggling peasants of like, the 1700s or the 1800s, right? These are not people living in desperate poverty, eager to escape that by any means necessary. These are people who are already fairly rich and comfortable. What can AI give them that they don't already have? So when you look at the 
Everyone thinks that AI is going to kill jobs, blah, blah, blah. People also thought that about industrial technology. I, you can find articles from like 1960 saying that new industrial technologies, manufacturing technologies are going to put humans out of a job. Humans will be obsolete. You see this, the same argument being made in like 1960. And it's crazy. Anyway, so these arguments always exist. They are countered by the upside. We need the upside of technology. What could you get more of? from AI. And that's what we need to talk about. We need to get rid of this indefinite optimism of the market will figure out things and you'll get those things, right? We need to ditch the indefinite optimism. Teal is right about this. We need to go for definite optimism and and Teal is right. And also Brad DeLong is right. Brad DeLong says, industrial policy needs to tell people what they're going to get concretely. Have you read that book, Concrete Economics, by the way? Uh, n- not that one, no. Well, uh, that is really good. towards utopia, the, the one that everyone's read. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah. so slouching toward utopia is great, but concrete economics is going to be the more important book in terms of changing the world. Um, yeah, because it's a, yeah. it's a slim, readable volume that you, unlike slouching toward utopia, which is a giant, you know, uh, doorstop of a tome, sl- concrete economics is you can read in like an hour and you can get huh. the point. Okay. That's, it's that's really a, more of a long essay than a book, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm just very sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, so so what concrete economics says? We need to tell people. So it says two important things. There, you can summarize concrete economics in two sentences. The first sentence is: No industrial policy is actually a pro-finance industrial policy, right? And then, um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is: In order for industrial policy to succeed politically, you need to tell people what they're going to get from the policy, from the economy. What can your economy give to you? And I think for AI, we just, uh, you know, we need to answer that in order to get people to not fall victim to the siren song of AI slowdowns and pauses, right? We need to say what AI is going to get you. And one of the main things it's going to get us is, is security, national security, right? When China comes with their automated drone swarms of death, we need to have our automated drone swarms of death ready to fight them. And so, we, you know, like, you know, my, fine. I, you know, like I, I don't have to like worry about my job being taken by some robot. But then the, I promise you, the AI swarm, the the robot swarms of death are are more dangerous than like a computer learning how to do part of your job. Okay, like, right. <laughs> so, yeah. So so that's one thing. So national security is a big one, and then of course all the other things that that could become cheaper and easier with AI. You know, like a lot of the onerous, boring work that people do right now is is going to meetings and typing on emails and stuff. We need to convince people that AI or at least generative AI is going to like ease their lives and make their lives much less full of bullshit. I think. Yeah, I, I think that's you're you're right in terms of the I, I, I think we, we largely agree on the benefits of AI and on the kind of economic forecasts of AI. I'm just much more pessimistic about the regulatory environment. I, I think if we had today's uh, regulatory environment around, for example, the Industrial Revolution, the Luddites would have won. And, you know, you can argue <laughs> that the Luddites won in terms of clean energy. You can argue that the Luddites, you can certainly argue that the Luddites won in That's terms true. of nuclear. Yes. You know, the, the, the Luddites have had, you know, undefeated string of W's, you know, ever since the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was established. They've just been taking W after W. And yeah, I, I, you know, I think a lot of Silicon Valley people think that, you know, like AI is going to be 
just just powerful enough that even if there's a state crackdown, we can kind of build around it. We can like go to you know we we can go to like some kind of we can go to El Salvador or something, right? Build build AI on the cloud. Um, I I'm very skeptical of that. I, I think that you know the crackdowns matter, and the crackdowns are just extreme. They are going to be significant. Or like if we do nothing. You know, like, like if there is no concerted policy effort, that the crackdowns will be extreme and they will, you know, basically strangle strangle machine learning as... And I do agree with you. I do agree with you on the kind of national security benefits, but I don't think that that's going to be enough. I think that the kind of fervor, the already explicitly stated fervor of these regulators is going to win. Like at the end of the day, this is kind of like this is the okay. Kind you of, can this is the entire motivation behind you know everything that I'm doing at this point. All right, so you can sit there and be pessimistic all you want. I can't stop you, right? But like then you just then all you do is die a pessimist. That's right, what no, you no, get. I do think you know. I do think the fight is real, right? I I don't think you know we're completely doomed. I I just think that you know everyone in Silicon Valley should be basically like getting up and moving to to DC and to the engage. Not literally everyone, of course, but you know th- there should be many more people. You know, I want like Beth Jezos to to come to DC with me and like <laughs> you know do the lobbying fight and convince all of these staffers oh, that Beth, he's uh, great. of all of the goods that ChatGPT is going to give them. You know, yeah. Well, you're gonna need. People more than just people in the tech industry, you're going to need, um, you know, economists too. Like Eric Brynjolfsson is going to be important here. Uh, yeah, I, that's I, going to be very interesting. Yeah, I've, I've moderated two panels on this recently. You know, go on. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I, uh, I moderated. What were the panel, panels? Yeah, one at Stanford, one at Berkeley. Uh, the one at that, um, the one at Stanford had, you know, it had Eric, it had uh, Tina Ilindu, it had someone from a, you know, who runs a nonprofit. Um, about like making AI work for everyone. And I came away pretty optimistic from that panel, you know, like the people there were, were not like, let's regulate and crack down and blah, blah, blah. I think there's a lot of talk about it, but I don't see much action yet. Um, notice that Japan is going in the totally opposite direction. Japan yeah, is I, saying, I saw this as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're the AI you, you can paradise. Explain it to the audience. Yeah. So you know what? I one of my theses is that so so Kishida, the Japanese prime minister, has decided Japan is just going to be completely permissive toward AI, and we're going to, you know, like AI come here and do your stuff here. And you know, when I was just in Tokyo for the Hanami festivals, um, I was walking through Yoyogi Park, and I just saw a ton of foreigners. You know, Tokyo is such an international city right now. And I sat down next to two different groups of people and appropriated their alcohol and started talking to them, as you do, and. Both of the people were, were that both of the groups of people that I randomly sat down with and start talking to were AI researchers living in Tokyo. Um, and so the, the globalization of Japan started under Shinzo Abe. Um, all the people who said that he was some sort of like xenophobic nationalist were just completely huffing their own fumes of bullshit. Um, Abe opened Japan to the world. The tourism boom, the immigration boom, Japan is like open now and, and in terms of, you know, a deregulatory boom as well. Um, if, if America cracks down on AI, if America decides to go the way of Europe and crack down on AI, we will, people will move to Tokyo because Japan is great. It is a nicer place to live than America. If you can do the same kinds of work you would do in America and make the same kinds of money, there would be no reason at all to live in America instead of Japan. 
except for language, I guess. But, you know, even that, like, you know, you can you can get by not speaking any Japanese in Tokyo now, which is unfortunate because I wish everyone would really? learn Japanese. Huh. It, and it's I, I get annoyed at all the people who don't learn to speak Japanese in Tokyo. But the blunt fact of it is they get by because there's such an expat community there, which it used to, you know, this isn't like the 90s. It's not just a bunch of like loser English teachers or, you know, like um, a random, you know, weebs on a pilgrimage. It is <laughs> right. This isn't that. This, like these are these are you know seriously highly competent people. Um, uh, I think Patrick McKenzie has been instrumental in telling people that they can move to Japan, and um, and you know Europe is going to realize that uh, you know Europe thinks it has a it has a sort of a Xi Jinping type thinking that manufacturing is what matters. <laughs> Right. They, they've Europe was would have been able to have a, an East European software cluster to rival Silicon Valley. But, you know, the wise masters of the EU have closed the local markets to a lot of the software innovation that's going on in East Europe by not allowing giant software companies to emerge. You know, and so because they basically closed people off, the East European software cluster has been far inferior to the American software cluster and is more on the level of, uh, you know, it, it's solid. I would put it more on the level of the Indian software cluster than on the level of the American one or the Chinese one. And yeah, so I think it's far inferior to the Chinese one. Like, like what is a notable you know saying, like the Chinese European, one's Indian, similar to the American yeah. one. China and America are tops. I would say India and East Europe are solid, like second tier in terms of software clusters. And then Europe could have been one of the top, but it chose not to be. Yeah, it, it is. Right. Every every once in a while, you know, every time they pass a new, uh, every time they pass new software regulation, I, I just retweet this or, or I quote tweet them and say, you know, like, Europe is just China with lower national IQ. And this, this always goes crazy. I, I think like, yeah, and this is my unironic sentiment about it. it. It does really pain me to see, you know, like, on one hand, when I look at like Chinese industrial policy, I, I just say, you know, like, this is wrong, but I appreciate the attempt, right? It, it's like there, there's a kind of aspiration there that, that I think right. I at least, you know, want to give, give some respect to, even if it's, you know, very I don't think headed I don't think Europe the has European lower world. national IQ than China, whatever that means. I think that Europe is simply more fragmented. You know, I think it's, it's just more divided. They're not dumber. They're just, uh, you know, I mean, like, Europe is much is a much richer place than China, and China has done some dumb yeah. ass stuff. Like China's whole like real estate treadmill to hell, which is now uh, oh that was yeah that, like that was, that was dumb. Funny. Like that's not like yeah. that is not something for which I would use the phrase high national IQ for right like or or zero COVID or um blah 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 because the nation is just Xi Jinping and you know the national IQ is just Xi Jinping's own IQ right. Right, Whereas right. Is the, th the thing with like the, the thing with China, right, is that it's it's too high trust. It like does these national projects because it can. It's like it's like the state capacity curse, right? I think I forget who who is speaking with Tyler. I remember I think it was like Richard Nania talking to Tyler about this, right? He he has like can too much can too much state capacity be a curse? Uh, I I do think that is actually what happened to China. Whereas like Europe. I didn't know, actually, because Europe is sort of a counterexample to that, right? The EU, they'll pass stuff like GDPR that's like, you know, it's not effective industrial policy. There's no, no goal here. It's, it's just, just like destroys shit. things. Yeah. Right. At least with like with China, at least there's an attempt. 
right? You can see that they're like, they're, they're trying to do something. It might be wrong. It might be very destructive, right? Zero COVID, it was very destructive. But you know, you, you saw what they were trying to do. With the EU, it's like, you get, you get similar, you know, at least in terms of software, I think it's the case that in terms of software regulation, they get similar levels of destruction, but with just no goal. No, with just no no kind of direction, just a sheer exercise of political economy manifesting into this, you know, really like anti-human ideology. I think, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. so pessimistic. But you have to EU. understand, like, like Europe and China are in two very different situations. Until you know, in the 2000s and uh, and you know, 2010s, Europe was this rich, comfortable, you know, place that was really nice to live, right? And uh, and um, you know, China was this up and coming sort of poor to middle income place that had to grow really fast and where everybody's really excited about growth. And China was at a small fraction of the, the GDP per capita of Europe. You're going to get very different political economies in those situations with fragmentation or no, you know, you're going to get very difficult, a different, um, you know, sort of, of policies there. But now what you're seeing is that, that China has hit the, the middle income growing pains, right? And Europe is still what it was, but China is something different now. So China is pursuing pro-stagnation policies at a much lower level of income than Europe. Right. Sure, they're building a ton of cars, and that's good, actually. That's the sort of like the bright spot in Chinese uh, policy right now. But the um, the idea that they were going to use, instead of building a real welfare state, they were going to use, or, or a real healthcare system, they were going to use housing as the thing that gave everyone jobs and redistributed wealth to everyone in the country. That was basically the idea, like housing replaced the welfare state, housing, like, you know, provided all the jobs. Housing was the main engine of redistribution and income security and wealth security and nest eggs and all the stuff. And also of macroeconomic stabilization. You know, whenever, whenever there was like a economic threat, China would just pump up the real estate. That was what they did every damn time. And so um, that was, you know, Europe has a welfare state, but at least Europe has like a VAT. And like national health care, which actually like kind of works. Um, you know, Europe does a lot of these things better than China does. And they're a lot richer than China. And yes, Europe regulates technology too much and they regulate industry too much. And this is a problem and they're going to need to solve it. And we need to yell at them until they get their heads out of their butts. And honestly, I think that I'm a little optimistic about Europe getting their heads out of their butts on this. Really? Huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because of Russia, because they're scared. If you look at how fast Poland got its head out of its butt on immigration, like the EU it re- is going to realize that like if we can't produce munitions to match some shitty little country like Russia, we're doomed. <laughs> like they're yeah, and, I, I think like looking at at France as well. It's like maybe like long long the national governments of of EU member states and like short the EU commission. Maybe. You know, France's pattern is always to sort of do the wrong thing until Germany does the right thing and then scramble to catch up with Germany. Again and again. They always do that. Well, they used to do this to Britain. Now they do this to Germany. So France is like, you know, what are I doing? We must do that too. You know, it's like, um, I can make fun of French people on this podcast, right? It's not, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We This is a, this is not a safe space for French people. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, French um, people. Um, you made a spell fiance with two E's if it's a woman. No, you made a spell blonde with an E if it's a woman and made that a snuck gendered language back into the English language. No, France, this will not stand (laughs) anyway. So wait, wait wait a minute. So, so people spell blonde with an E if it's a woman. 
Yes. In English? Yes. What? I discovered this two days ago, man. What? I never thought I've there never was a difference done this. between those. I never thought there was a difference between blonde with an E and without. I find out blonde with an E is supposed to be a woman and it's from French. <laughs> I like I, I grew up in Canada, so I knew this was true about French. I, I've never seen I, I've never yeah. seen anyone write blonde with an E. I guess you were. I guess you were Canadian. The first time I heard you say about. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. Do you also say? Do you also say sorry? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I talk about this with Americans. All. Why would it be anything other than sorry? Like, I don't know. Just look at the word. We say sorry. The word is s, or right, and and then and then why? Right. It's, It's it's sorry. I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, I can't. You know, I'm not going to criticize. Right. Okay. Um, so, so let's get, get let's get back on track. You know, back we, on track. We talking about back on track. You know, e is being dumb, but they they know, and especially Germany knows that that cutting the EU off from AI will mean that their manufacturing suffers because AI is going to be really important to manufacturing. Hmm, Europe that, will realize this, and it will be scared of Russia. Right. Uh, say, say more about AI's role in manufacturing. Well, I mean, AI, you know, predictive AI, first of all, AI will be essential to manufacturing innovation, right? You can use AI to figure out how to build products, to invent new products. Oh, for sure, yeah. To do actual engineering. Uh, second of all, AI will be involved in optimization of, of processes, right? It will solve a million traveling salesman problems and multi-armed bandit problems and all those problems, like better, you know? And so so AI will do that. Um, AI uh, sort of, um, so Germany has this incredibly important robotics industry. I'm sorry, you do not get a robotics industry without AI. You die. Right, right. But like <laughs> Germany, it's, it's an extremely important tentpole. Uh, Germany's machine tool industry in general, which is, goes beyond robotics, will all be dependent on AI, AI programming. Um, and so so AI will be incredibly important. A bio, biopharma, like AI is just going to take that over. Drug discovery, like Europe does... a ton of medical stuff like medical technology is a really important tentpole of European economies. Um, I'm sorry, but you're not, that's not going to work without AI. Like that's just that AI is going to take that over. Um, it already is like, um, and I'm talking about predictive AI. I'm not even talking about like chat GPT, right? That right, may right. be just important. the logistics, just the forecasting models. Right. Yeah. Just predictive this models. Is, and I, in fact, I think that I, I, I believe that, Predictive AI is now underrated and generative AI slightly overrated relative to predictive AI. I think Can predictive, predictive AI, AI ever be underrated. Does any who who underrates be, because like predictive or like predictive AI is already the industry standard, maybe underrated by like the public, right? Like yes. the public is, is like just not paying attention to it. I, I think industry has like the correct rating of it. Yeah, probably. That's probably true. You're probably right. And, um, yes. and so I think that, that, but the point is that you can't differentiate between the AI researchers who work on chatbots and the AI researchers who work on like, you know, algorithms for like making like, you know, new drugs, right? You, those are the same people. It's the same talent. You're going to drive the talent away. You're not going to be able to say, well, we'll make this thing and not that thing. You won't be able to do it. It's, it's sort of like the Asimoglu idea that's just going to fail. You can't like shape and steer these technologies. And the fact that every time like... It's like, yeah, Europe just hops on the bus of worrying about whatever, like, you know, I don't know, progressive shouters are worried about online. Um, China does this too, by the way. 
but uh, but Europe does this too much. And so like, you know, people start saying uh, like, oh, you know, internet sites track your privacy and sell your data. Because in the aftermath of the 2016 election, everyone was was scrambling to come up with ideas why Facebook is bad because Facebook was sort of the main <laughs> yeah. locus for Trump ads, right? And so everyone is scrambling to think of this reason why Facebook bad. And so they settled on data privacy because like that was one of the only things they could really get Facebook for. And so <laughs> Europe took this seriously and made this law about how everyone needs to accept cookies on everything. That's what came out of the 2016 election anger is GDPR. That's where that's from. Like, I'm sure people were thinking about that already. Like people have been complaining about cookies. from Russiagate, man. Really? Of course. Is is that why they did GDPR? Oh my goodness. Obviously. That's even worse than I thought. Well, it's just like American brainworms from American politics. It really is. I mean, see, I just thought I just thought, you know, they wanted to do this crackdown. I just thought, you know, like the privacy laws were always a thing. And there had been Europe. It was because of fucking Russiagate. There had been people calling for it for a while. Okay. Okay. It wasn't wasn't even it wasn't Russiagate. It was more just like the um, the general negative tone. So so if you look at a graph of New York Times stories about Facebook. You see this massive yeah. negative turn after the 2016 election. Everyone loved yeah, Facebook before 2016. Yeah. All the like <laughs> intelligentsia hated it after 2016 because that's where all the like Trump supporting posts were. Right? If the, if Facebook hadn't existed, they all it w- would have all been email forwards, right? <laughs> or just the <laughs> yeah. Drudge report or something. Like it would have those Trump pro Trump messages would have gotten out, but the fact is they did happen on Facebook because Facebook was the social network that old people used and old people tend to be Republicans. So um, that's what happened. And people blamed the company Facebook and they started looking around. So, so the tone of news coverage about Facebook became overwhelmingly negative and that spilled over into every sort of coverage about Facebook. And so this privacy stuff, which some people had always complained about started, became front and center. And, uh, you know, be, you know, people started complaining about it much more. And there had been this movement to do something about cookies since the 1990s. Right. You remember, like, I remember people complaining about cookies in like 2002 or whatever. Like, oh, no cookies. And, and, you know, no one like that. That whole idea was rumbling in the background, but it was definitely the explosion of anti-Facebook anger after the 2016 election. Not even Russiagate. That was that was really something else. It was this was really just anti-Facebookism. That that I think led to GDPR. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw it from the American side, but I, I'm I'm very surprised that that was the kind of narrative. You know, it is truly, you know, it is truly a global village, um, for better or for worse. Yes. Yeah, so, so we've we've taken a world tour. We've gone from the states to Japan to uh, China to Europe to the EU. You know, what about what about the UK? The, Rishi seems to be doing some interesting things. You know, funding the these AI programs. Um, the the head of aria which is like this this ai research program that that they've that they funded spoke at ea spoke at ea london he, he seems yeah. to be like a man of the posters uh R- rishi sunak um he's are, a man of the posters yeah sunak yeah he's he, he, right. he totally is you know anyway so so are are you optimistic on the on the kind of british uh, ai ai investment policies I am uh, simply because Britain is in such a parlous state like Japan. They're one of these sort of undeveloping countries that's falling out of the top rank of, of, you know, income. And they're really upset about this, you know, legitimately upset. And they're going to try to 
grasp at a lot of things that might save them from it. And AI is one thing they'll grasp. Unfortunately, crypto is another thing they're going to grasp, like especially in UK, um, because it just, you know, they haven't heard that, that they haven't, they haven't yet quite heard about Sam Bankman Fried and, you know, all that stuff yet. Like they've heard of it, but they, you know, there's still a lot of people trying to sell a bunch of like hapless British and Japanese dorks on crypto and they'll have success for years after they stop being able to sell American dorks on crypto. So, so it has its ups and downs, right? Overall, I thought that was always just more of a marketing thing, right? I I do think like, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, crypto is a very media sensitive, sensitive industry, right? It's very, I, I do think that, I don't know, maybe this is just my, this is definitely suffering from some kind of selection effect, but yeah, the, the I, I've met a few British um, industrial policy people, actually, and, and they seem to actually, like, like here is where I agree with you. They seem to be, like, very dead set on AI, um, in, including, like, the ARIA people. Yes, yes, I think, and that's good, you know? Um, international competition does a lot of good. It, it can do a lot of bad, but it can do a lot of good. Yeah, so, so, so I think something that we've been kind of dancing around is... Uh, is like just this general sentiment of doomerism. I think both of I I did realize like reading your articles I real I thought that you were more of a or you were significantly less of a doomer, you're more of a bloomer than most people. I didn't realize like how much even more optimistic than you are than me. Uh so, yeah. so you wrote this article called Don't Be a Doomer um yeah. about about basically just the kind of futility that comes from doomerism. But like I think there's more than that. There's a kind of expression, right? So what do you think is the kind of actual motivation behind doomerism? Why, why, why do you think it's so common nowadays? In America, I think the main reason is just, um, you know, uh, social unrest. I think that we live in a divided society and the, uh, the bad feelings that come from those divisions tend to make people look for things that are going wrong in the world. That's that, pretty much it. Hmm. So, so, like, okay, so we have division. Division leads to negativity. That that's a little too tautological to me, right? Um. Uh, okay. Like, fine, like where are the like, divisions coming from? What I mean. Oh, where are the divisions coming from? Um. Yeah. Well, okay. So that. Um. Uh. Like, I, like I have a lot of friends who are, you know, like populist, you know, like full on uh, Trump people. And they they would say they would give the the opposite causation, right? They they would say like first they were doomers, first they saw you know all of this pessimism, you know that that's like literally the the JD Vance argument, right? I saw all of the I saw all of the my, my community being ruined in Ohio, and now I, now I'm a Trump supporter, uh, right? They would so, say the causation's the other way, right? There's a lot of things. I, I think that what happens is that the 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 cop out answer to this is a very general answer that's true. Um, the specific answers will be a little more uncertain. But I would say the general answer is that the United States had reached an equilibrium of of status in our society, a status equilibrium that was no longer tenable, um, that was had become an unstable equilibrium. And then a series of events kicked it over and kicked over the old equilibrium and we're settling into a new one. That's a cop-out answer because it's very general but I can give you specific answers about what I mean. So, for example, um, 
all basically every like corporate manager in like 1998 was a white man. Not everyone. There was a few white women and a few non-white people around, but white men really ruled the roost. And then American society diversified. Women started, you know, climbing up the management ranks a lot more in like the late 90s and especially the 2000s and, and you know, early 2010s. Uh, women started climbing up the ranks more. High-skilled immigrants came in. Uh, so the ranks of the, um, you know, the, the cognitive elite were not very white anymore. Um, and so the, um, the uh, you know, the, the old white guys who, who ran the companies just because that's who there was in 1998, right? Um, they ran all the companies. They, you know, the, the idea was they were probably passing over uh, people for promotions, um, you know, and, um, and not respecting them enough simply because everyone has this natural tendency toward uh, thinking that people who can talk to them and speak their language and look like them or whatever are a little smarter because they understand them better. And so, um, you know, people felt shut out at work. Right. And so, um, and I think that that was untenable. We had, we had rapidly diversified as a country and yet the ranks of upper management and elite and the elite were like so disproportionately white men that I think that had to shake out. And I think a lot of what you see in terms of um, wokeness, right, and cancel culture, you know, some of that is about crusading social movements and blah, blah, blah. A lot of that is actually about uh, getting rid of the old managers to make room for new managers. So you see, like, in media companies, a lot of the old guys getting booted because, oh, you, you, you know, harassed women, blah, blah. It, you know, it's fine. Harassing women's bad. It's, you know, it's a lot of these people deserve to be booted. Uh, and a few people didn't, but, but a lot of people did. But more importantly, I think that a lot of the impetus for that comes from the fact that like a lot of women and non-white people in the, in the intellectual elite and in the educated elite um, felt that they, that, that the system wasn't um, set up for them. You know, they, they didn't have a fair place in the status hierarchy of American society. And so we shook it up, right? And there were a number of ways in which this was true. So the, another way is representation in uh, media, right? The, the people who, because of the same, you know, kind of, of generational turnover effect, you had TV shows that still put non-white people in very stereotypical minor roles, even after the country had diversified massively. And that needed to be kicked over. And that was kicked over by wokeness, by, you know, the, the crusade for representation really kicked that over. Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, the American society of 2013 was a, a, a status tinderbox. It was an unstable equilibrium just waiting to be kicked over into a new equilibrium. The equilibrium was stable in the nineties and had become unstable by 2013. And, um, and there was just this giant fight because every every institution sort of, um, you know, had these fights. Wokeness is fractal and pervasive. Every single institution from the United States government and corporations to universities to like knitting societies and the romance novelists, writers of America or whatever they're called, had their own woke blow up. And it was bitter every time and there were fights every time. And the fights all worked out exactly the same. And they all ended up exactly the same. And ultimately, a new equilibrium has started to be reached. And that is my grand theory of American social unrest. And it's a, not a pleasant process. And it's, it's, it's like what happened in the late 60s and early 70s. 
Um, it is very similar to that, although the, you know, that was more about material conditions for, you know, for black people, but it was also about status. You know, it was about recognition as part of the American polity for minority groups, um, you know, who had been basically either ignored or actively discriminated against. It was about, you know, women being allowed in the workforce and and people taking like rape seriously and things. So you saw a similar explosion in the late 60s and early 70s, but it was about somewhat different things because at that point it was more material. By this time, it's more status based, but it's the principle is the same. We America was was in an unfair situation and a lot of people felt was unfair and needed to be shaken up and it got shaken up and it wasn't fun for most people. People did not like it. The 2010s sucked ass. Like at least in the 60s, you know, we had sex, (laughs) drugs, peace, love, and like not wearing a suit to work. And that was cool, right? Like that was a cool development. We, uh, you know, the 60s and 70s had a lot of negative stuff, but had a lot of positive stuff in which life just got a lot more fun and good. Um, But then the 2010s, we didn't really like life didn't get more fun and good. Depression soared and, and, you know, uh, just like people got much more unhappy. It was not as fun, right? It was, you know, in the 20s, we had this period of unrest, but in the 20s, we also had massive economic progress such that people yeah. were like unhappy about society, but they were getting much richer really fast. And in the 2010s, we did not have the hippie loosening of society. We did, and nor did we have the, uh, the 20s, the roaring 20s. Instead, we had nothing. We just had the social unrest with no countervailing benefits. And so it sucked. I'm sorry. It sucked, but it's ending now. Right. So this is kind of, this is kind of similar to the church argument, which I'm in the middle of writing an article against now of kind of like against Sturgeon. Elites. Get his right. ass. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I love Sturgeon, uh, but get his ass. <laughs> right. Um, right. So, I know, but but this version of uh, this this version of the narrative, right, is 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 almost even more kind of in in favor of like the quote unquote new elite, right? Um, the, the idea is that they're actually I, I'm not sure about this because you mentioned wokeness. This is more of a kind of you know right right coded term. How much do you think the the claims were legitimate, right? How how, how much do you think the 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 skill differential or was actually like going, going in the favor of whites, right. Or, or of white men. Uh, I think that in, in management of companies, it was big. Um, in my, in my econ department, I saw a sort of a bro white dude get tenure with a worse publication record than like a Chinese mom. You know, I saw that happen. And then when I asked them why, I heard people say, oh, well, her English ability isn't good enough. That was 2011. Um, that was bullshit. Like, you know, I, um, there were that little things like that were pervasive and it doesn't have to be a gigantic difference. You know, you don't have to be like living in a shack. Right. But then, but, but those things really piss people off who are, who are ambitious and who want a tenure tenured faculty position or a role in upper management or whatever. And people get really pissed off at that. And, 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 you know, when that kind of stuff is fairly pervasive, it's not just the real times that happen, but the imagined times as well. Right. Like if you're like for Ellen Powell, it was probably imaginary. Right. Um, it, she wasn't really discriminated against. She was actually just unstable, 
But um, right. <laughs> there are lots of people they really were discriminated against, right? Like I saw it happen in real time right in front of me. And I was astonished by it as a, you know, millennial sort of uh, a wokester. I was astonished by this, right? Like um, the, the, just the casual language that would be used at that time. I remember this, the seminar I saw in 2009 or something where this guy is talking about a production function that's heavily skill weighted. And he says, he says, maybe for, to make all this software, you just need like a few good guys. And then for the rest, you get a bunch of Indians. I was like, what did I just hear? You know, like, and I got, I got upset and complained. I was, you know, I was a woke kid. Um, I, I, I yelled at people behind closed doors for that. I didn't uh, take to Twitter and, and, you know, cancel culture in my whole department or whatever, but I did yell at people. Like it was, there was, that kind of stuff was kind of pervasive. And, um, and now I would say that it's not, it is no longer pervasive. I would say the battle against that has been won. Another thing that was absolutely pervasive was sexual harassment. Um, the, the eighties version of sexual harassment of like, like I will promote you if you fuck me the quid pro quo sexual harassment had already been gotten rid of in the nineties, but the softer sexual harassment of like men constantly talking to their female coworkers about sex in a creepy, weird way. And like making them feel uncomfortable and whatever that was still pervasive. And honestly, quid pro quo sexism wasn't completely gone. Harvey Weinstein did it. Like I remember, you know, I, I was talking to these people who just told me these rumors that like Harvey Weinstein was making these like, like actresses fuck him for parts. And, um, and I was like, what? And they, they were like, yeah, I was like, well, you gotta, we gotta get rid of this guy. Someone's gotta get rid of that guy. I just can't do that. They're like, yeah, but who's going to do it? How are you going to do it? And then Twitter came and then suddenly you could do it. And so (laughs) I think that there was this, this giant, like Bloomberg, this company I worked for had this massive shakeout where Mike Bloomberg ran for mayor and everyone knew that, that Bloomberg was a haven for bros and sexists. And when Mike Bloomberg ran for mayor, he knew this wouldn't fly. He fired them all. And Bloomberg came, became one of the best companies for women to work at because Mike Bloomberg just knew who the sexists were and he had complete control over his company because of the financial arrangement he had. And he just uh, snapped his fingers and the sexists were gone. Done. And he won the mayorship. And, uh, <laughs> and so that, uh, and I think he was a pretty good mayor anyway. But uh, yeah, so I think that those reckonings needed to happen. And people who don't remember the world of the 2000s because they're too young uh, do not remember how different it was. It was like, it wasn't maybe as big a change as like the 50s to the 60s or the, you know, whatever. But it was a, it was a change. Like there has been a change. And a lot of that stuff was necessary. And then some stuff has been done that was unnecessary and it was, or stupid or went too far or whatever. Um, that is social change. Welcome to social change, right? But uh, but something had to be done. People didn't want to, you know, th- there was something there was something off about the world of the 2000s that had not been off about the world of the 90s. In the 90s, we had racism and discrimination. But, you know, like women were slowly w- women were climbing the corporate ladder and, um, you know, like minorities were getting hired more, which hadn't been really hired before. And there was lots of progress on those fronts. And yeah, white men dominated like the ranks of management and whatever tenured professors or whoever, but like, honestly, that's, that's who had the talent and the knowledge at that point. And, but yet things were diversifying and there was this feeling of progress. And by, by 2010 or by the early 2010s, that feeling of progress had kind of stalled. And Mm. even as we had become rap, very rapidly, this much more diverse society, 
right? Our in our educated elite um, um, had just gone from essentially almost all white with like a few sprinklings of like, I don't know, Taiwanese people or whatever, like, but almost entirely white educated elite in the 80s and 90s to ed- educated, the, the boom in skilled immigration in the 90s and the 2000s meant that by 20, 2012, you know, like our educated elite was a lot Asian, but also Middle Eastern and African, et cetera. Like that was a, the social powder kick. And one thing I love about Tyler Cowen's writings is that he talks about status explicitly, hmm. which David yeah, m- many such, many such economist friends, um, including ones who have been on the show, uh, Tyler, Robin Hanson. Uh, yeah. I-, I like the explicit discussion of status as well. Um, right. You need, you it, start? it's really important. You know, it's Maslow's, freaking hierarchy yeah i do think yeah on on the question of kind of like real how pervasive is real discrimination i I do think like the the question of sex and the question of race really need to be separated i know like i agree yeah on with regards to race i think even like the most conservative people know this there are a lot of men even like smart men you know maybe disproportionately smart men who, who just like do not function around women and like, <laughs> on, on one hand, like, are, are they sexist? I I don't know. Like, a lot of them are kind of like, you know, you you can say that, right? You you can say that, like, um, it, it's disadvan it's disadvantageous for women for you know all of these uh, all of these like basically autists who who like just can't talk to them competently. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so like that. Uh, on like feminism, I'm actually like definitely willing to give more credit on that. On race, I think like you know you you had the executive orders on affirmative action since essentially since since Johnson, right? Uh, Richard, right. Uh, I was actually just reading um, one of Richard's uh, posts about this. Um, yeah, I, I'm very in general in in most areas of life. I'm very suspicious that, you know, like second order, whenever there's ever a claim that like second order effects dominate first order effects. I think that when you have affirmative action, when you have kind of explicit programs in universities that, you know, like if anything, the racism is going the other way. Um, on, on sexism, I do think that, yeah, on, on sexism, it's much more nuanced. And it is like, there's there's these kind of like right wing-ish or like economically left-wing, socially right-wing people like uh, Louise Perry and Mary Harrington, who are talking about this now, right? That, that the sexual con- or like the, the social contract between like men and women just like didn't make sense. And yeah, like I'm someone who grew- who is like much younger, um, who, who was yeah, who, who was not really paying attention, certainly not to politics. Remind me how um, old you are. Um, I would okay. I'll, I'll just cut this out, but uh, people don't know this. I'm 22. <laughs> oh, 22. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so you don't remember um, any of this. Yeah, I'll... sorry. You don't remember any of this stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, right. So, so I'm I'm much more willing to give give credence when it comes to sexism, but at the same time, you have these like trying to draw a causal story from like there's this wonderful there's this wonderful paper Hanania shared um, called uh, I think. Prejudice, prejudice is free, but discrimination is costs. About just like the the total failure to um, essentially have these kind of racist policies against you know uh, what 
Amy Chua calls market dominant minorities, right? Uh, Jews in right. Germany. Um, I mean, like at the end of the day, you know, at the at the end of the Third Reich, they had um, certain very effective policies that were just overwhelmingly destructive. But but document this paper documented the failures of uh, say early um, anti-Jewish policies. You still had much of the German public still, you know, going to German or going to Jewish shops going to uh, Jewish banks, you know, like when, when there is a cost to it, the public is not so is not so willing to abide by these kinds of policies and so on and so forth. How did in that other end? Countries in Malaysia and so on. How did that end right? up? Sorry? The, those, those anti-Jewish policies in Germany, like what was the, how did those ultimately end up? Right. They, obviously they escalated, right? Obviously they escalated. They escalated. Somehow the emperor returned. Yeah, somehow yeah, yeah. Palpatine returned. Like, like it ended, yeah, it ended in the <laughs> Holocaust, obviously, and and obviously that you know was very destructive. The, but you look at the you look at this paper, right, and it just uh, it just shows you know when there is an economic cost to pay for these things, you you maintain these kind of rigid economic differences based on which are basically like based on the performance of of those people beforehand, right. So you have this, you have these kind of natural experiments in essentially racism, and it's essentially the case that, you know, if there, if there are indeed differences in, say, culture or differences in academic ability, so on and so forth, that these persist extremely strongly. So, so with regards to, especially with regards to academia, um, maybe I'm much more familiar with that, um, with regards to uh, certainly, I think with regards to technical industries and anywhere where there's a kind of like market weight on competence, I'm pretty skeptical of, uh, yeah, I really do want to draw a pretty hard line between, um, between, you know, kind of like the, the race, um, quote unquote wokes, right? I don't like that term particularly anymore either. It's um, gotten it's just been so saturated. But, yeah. but let's go with it. You know, we don't really have anything better. Um, those people, I think, are just completely wrong, are, are just like completely missing the, the first order effect for the second order effect. And that if, if anything, like black people have had an advantage for many, many decades at this point. Um, when it comes to when it comes to sex, I, I do think that's a much more interesting question. There's like, yeah, I think I think when it comes to that, it's like, there are correct observations, but mostly drawing the wrong causal story. Uh, I, I do think that, yeah, I, I do think when it comes to kind of sexual harassment, that there's more of a, there, there's more, more substance there in that this is something that you genuinely want to prevent. But in terms of drawing a causal story to different, different rates of economic success, I'm not sure that that actually holds up. And there are, there are many people like Richard, um, many well, people no, I mean, who, who pay attention to this much more than me, who can kind of give the statistical breakdown of why why that case is not well, actually. Look, you're talking about solid. for women, for women yeah. in the workplace. Yeah. Well, so if you look at the thing, you see that women started, you know, entering the workplace in the '60s, actually, and you see there was a slow build. Um, but by the '80s, by uh, most women had entered the workplace, and by the '90s, it was fully complete, and then. You, there's a progression where you to be a manager at a place, to be an executive, a couple things have to happen. Number one, you have to be at that company for a while, right? Yes, outside managers and executives get hired, but they get hired because they were managers and executives somewhere else, right? They hop companies. 
And so they need to, you need to stick around for a while to get into management, right? And so, uh, so it took, there, there's this lag between people getting hired for entry-level jobs and people becoming managers and executives. The other reason for the lag is that there are, much as we would like there not to be, there are things where there are effects where people hire, promote people who are similar to them. So you need to get some women in management so they promote more women, right? Um, yeah, the the lag part. I, I definitely. I've looked at the data on that. That seems right. Yeah, um, that lag is real. I think I've only looked Japan at right now, modern. You're, you're seeing this in Japan. Yeah, I, I've looked at. I, I'm not sure if this is the case in older hiring environments, but I have seen some papers more recently where both, at, at this point, both men and women prefer uh, preferentially uh, promote women. Um, but, but that might be more of a modern phenomenon. Yeah, no, that's, Um, I mean, that's just to, that's just to like, in response to the, the kind of desire to have more women in management, they're they're compensating, right? It's compensation. And so, but then, um, the point is that, uh, in Japan, what you're seeing right now is that women have all gotten jobs, but that they're very slow to join the ranks of management. And I can send you some data showing that. Um, and so you saw the same kind of thing in America in like the 90s and 2000s. You saw the rate at which women were were taking over management was lower than the rate at which there were women at the entry levels of the workforce who aspired to become managers, right? Expectations are really important here. And so what you got there was um, uh, what you got as a result was status anxiety because all these women who had these jobs right? We're worried that they weren't going to get promoted, that they didn't, that there was a glass ceiling, right? Google, mm. do a Google trend search for the term glass ceiling and see when those, when those, uh, that term peaked. This is a thing you don't know if you're 22 because like you weren't there, <laughs> but, but yeah. glass ceiling was this huge thing that everyone talked about in the nineties and two thousands, right? Uh, because so it was, it was glass ceiling, that, that, you know, this, this perception that if you weren't part of this boys club, you were never going to get promoted, right? Like that was the idea. You were never going to get promoted and it may be true and it may be false, but when there's relatively few women doing the promoting, it was easy to believe, right? And when men, when your male coworkers are like trying to talk to you about like weird sex stuff and like obviously crypto hitting on you or feel uncomfortable around you or whatever all day that reinforces the fear that there's no path for you ahead because if you have never gotten promoted to management, you don't know that you can. You see what I'm saying? So people, even whether... Yeah, I totally see the status case. I I don't think I'm in disagreement with you in terms of the status case. Um, This is actually very interesting because, um, yes, so I think we're in agreement that there's been a kind of overcorrection um, and I don't know that it's an I overcorrection, think... by the way. It could just be a rapid hmm. catch-up. So, for example, like what can look like an overcorrection can actually just be a, you know, a mistimed correct. Or a, it, it's weird because, so for example, um, you know, at some point, the people who give out the Hugo Awards realize that they had given out the Hugo Awards entirely to yeah, male. Yeah, the, the derivative is too high, but like the actual function is is correct. Correct. Right. Exactly. You got it and got it in one. And so you saw this scramble in the seventies to give a bunch of Hugos to women writers. And like, they weren't always the best writers (laughs) because you you don't find all the great women in one, in one five-year period. Right. You, and so, 
eventually over the next few decades, like, you know, at first it was like Ursula K. Le Guin is an all time, you know, goat. But, um, but then, um, I guess you don't know who to shaft here. <laughs> but then, uh, but then like, you know, I mean, no one remembers like where late the sweet bird sang or whatever from the seventies anyway. So then like, sorry if, uh, if, if Kate Wilhelm is listening to this podcast, um, but like <laughs> I've read all the Hugo's of course. Uh, but then like over time people discovered women writers, uh, you know, the, the, the sci-fi field became very equal because the, the truly great women writers eventually got discovered and you eventually had your, you know, not just Ursula K. Gwynn, of course, uh, but you had more. You had um, C.J. Cherry, and you had Lois McMaster Bujold, and you had um, Connie Willis, and you had um, uh, 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 Margaret Atwood, and you just had like a whole ton of really great female sci-fi authors. But you had that initial period where the, people were just lobbing Hugo's at like you know sort of second tier female authors because they had been because they had so long sort of kept female authors out. And that was, hmm. it was a necessary and, you know, and, and what do you get? You get a few years of slightly boring Hugo awards. Who cares? Just go read something else. Like, and so, um, and so um, it's, you know, it's fine. Uh, and so I think that we're seeing a similar thing with management. I think that um, there can be a, a rush toward countervailing discrimination, but that, uh, is 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 um, time limited. It's not going to last forever. Probably. Hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that there are these kind of status trade-offs or... Yeah, th- this is something that I don't think I've, I've, I've seen you write or speak about much, so it'd be interesting to hear about. So, so we have this yeah. problem. I think we agree that we have this problem of status, uh, this problem of... Um, both the perception of being overlooked and in many cases, the actual, you know, the actual say of being overlooked. And um, so certainly this kind of like, certainly even if the actions don't follow up, the kind of intention is very, is very suspicious, right. Of, you know, you, you can say either based on, you know, just, just being incompetent around women or, or having actual malicious intent. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to differentiate, right. But um, yeah, the, the perception is definitely there. And in many cases, in some cases, the, the perception is correct. So, um, so, There's so always the result be is difficulty. this. There's always going to be difficulty with like sexual tension in the workplace, right? That will always be yeah. a thing. But you know what? It exists on the other side too. And in the future, it'll just be a little more gender equal. And there'll be women who are uncomfortable to work around men because they're attracted to the men, you know, on some level. And they'll be uncomfortable. Because, like, the idea that women always know how to behave around men, but men don't be- know how to behave around women, that's wrong. Like, have you seen, like, have you seen people? Like, you got to see people at work. Yeah, like, I do think that there are population differences. Though. I, I do think that men are going to be more, you know, that they're more driven by kind of uh, in the moment attraction. I, I do think that there, there, there's actually a sex difference here. And in this case, it's a sex difference that strikes against men. Right? Oh, you got to be shitting me. No, <laughs> no. Hmm, really? Okay. No, yeah, like women. Um, I mean, there, there, you know, there, there are differences in how that plays out, but like, um, no, definitely, like, you know, women get really uncomfortable when, like, they're they're attracted to people, just like men do. Except, um, 
you know, with like in, in some ways it can even be harder for women because um, with men, I think a lot of that attraction is, is visually triggered. Like yeah. you see a, a woman who looks hot, um, but then people can just dress professionally for work and they don't dress in a sexy way. And that reduces sexual tension. Uh, and everyone talks about like dress codes. Men cannot, it is impossible for men to dress in a way that turns off their attractiveness. It, you can, but you have to dress like a complete slovenly slob, like a homeless person or like a clown to do that. <laughs> like it's extremely extreme. Like if you just like, if you're a woman and you put on like a Hillary Clinton pantsuit, that will, that will, you know, like take away a little bit of the problem for men. You put on a suit and like, that just makes you hotter. I don't know. So like, and then, <laughs> so like there's, there's, there, there can be, there are differences, but that doesn't mean that it's like, that that women don't have this problem because I promise you that they do. Yeah, I think like I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I feel like I've seen studies about this about like differential rates of attraction. Like men are just attracted to many more women than women are to men. Yeah, um, but all that means is like you're going to have a ton of women attracted to like the one hot guy in the office. Does that help? no? But even even if you integrate across all men and all women, right? You you still have like fewer pairs of like women attracted to men than men attracted to women, right? But what? Why are you thinking about area under the curve here? That's not what the. That's not how I define this. Like it's okay. not about area under the curve. It's about um, you know, it's about like having an issue at work or not. It's like an indicator function. You know, it's like um, it's uh. Anyway, I I. We can speculate all day, but I guess my point is that the idea that men are uniquely disadvantaged in workplaces relative to women, I don't think it's borne out. I think if you look at um, girls and boys uh, segregated schools, gender segregated schools, uh, you see that um, actually gender segregated schools do do better uh, for many things. And the the improvement a lot of the improvement is actually like it 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 improves for both right it's um you see a pretty substantial improvement for both um does that mean i think we should go back to gender segregated schools well maybe not because there's important things besides uh you know besides just schooling right uh but then so but i guess um what i'm saying is that like there are challenges to gender integrated workplaces, but those, I don't think those challenges are that hard to overcome, to be honest. And the idea. Yeah. It's hard to say the second order effect is greater than the first order effect. Yeah. yeah. Um, So this is interesting, right? And like, you know, um, as the guys on letter, Kenny would say, figured out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think like a lot of more right wing people are going to, are going to be mad at me for not pushing back more, but I I really do want to get to, get to the bottom of this because this is very interesting to me. Like, like how do you, how do you balance that kind of status orientation, right? You're, you're always going to have people who are, um, uh, who are attracted, uh, to other people in, um, other people in their workplace, you're, you're going to have some kind some, uh, amount of false negatives here too, right. Uh, of like people who, who would have otherwise actually been like reciprocally attracted and, uh, and, and who don't. And you're also going to have the element of corruption. You're going to have people right. trying to abuse their, um, I'm... abuse their seniority. Um, 
I have at the uh, same time you don't want to overcorrect. So, right. so like how, how do we how do we reach a new status equilibrium, right? I guess that's the question. I think that's right. I, I think some of this is about status, some isn't. Um, but then I actually think that um we've swung too far toward discouraging workplace romance. Oh, interesting. I think that workplace romance, including between people of different uh, levels at work, I think that, um, you know, some of the best relationships I've ever seen, some of the most stable relationships are people where one person was originally someone else's boss, uh, Mm. you know, whether they were a grad student or professor. I've seen a number of relationships like that with like, uh, you know, a first or second year assistant professor is is a TA for a grad student who's like the same age, basically. And like, they end up getting married and both becoming professors and then, and then being a prof couple together. Like that's, that's common. And like, honestly, that that has led to a lot of good relationships, but there was a power asymmetry there and it was unfair. You know, it was like, maybe they could have given them preferential grades. Maybe they could have, you know, this or that. Like there's, there's the obvious problems that we know with these power asymmetries the reasons why we've we've cracked down on a lot of this and socially discourage it and banned a lot. I think that we there are good reasons to discourage those things. You know, there's obvious problems with those those power asymmetries, but to think that relationships are just about power is is stupid and wrong and is a generational mistake. The the younger generations now have swung too far toward believing that power is the fundamental thing of relationships and it is not. Power is a thing you have to deal with, but actually intimacy is the most important thing in relationships. That is the key. And power is something that can get in the way of that and make it confusing and hamper it and discourage it and blah, blah, blah. But the point of a relationship is not to have a union of people with equal power. You're not, it's not a fucking like Habsburg, you know, arist- aristocratic marriage of like houses <laughs> join their resources. That's dumb. That's not what relationships are about. It's about human connection, intimacy, and we need the pendulum needs to swing back toward that realization. And we've discouraged workplace romances too much. Um, we've discouraged, um, you know, relationships between people who have some sort of power asymmetry. We've discouraged that too much. We need to make institutions that allow those things. Just disclose your relationship. You know, that's the the old system is just. You know, you can date your grad student as long as you tell people that you're dating your grad student. It's fine. Like, whatever. Like, I know there's problems with it. I know it's there's the potential for abuse. I know that there are, you know, some some downsides. But we've, we've, but by focusing only on the power aspect of relationships and not on the much more important intimacy aspect of relationships, um, we have lost something fundamentally human. And that is why, in many ways, the sort of younger millennial generation to me, the generation that's just older than you and just younger than me, right? The Harry Potter generation or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. Those people who are now in, like, you know, now basically like, you know, 28 through like 36, right? Or 37. That decade of people, those people have swung very much toward like an anti-intimacy, anti not, not not even anti-sex, I would say more anti-intimacy, anti-love sort of conception of relationships. And you've seen this, this big um, sort of um, kind of campaign uh, against interracial relationships from the left. 
And it's the same thing, right? It's the idea that interrelational oh. relationships are fundamentally power asymmetrical and therefore shouldn't happen. Oh, you've just you've just progressed yourself into a KKK position. You right. so, so I have a question. I have a question about the power dynamic stuff. Yeah. Is it more like is it more like implicit within the culture, or this is, or is this a thing that kind of like younger millennial, uh, younger millennials actually like explicitly worry about? Right. It's something they know. It they like, explicitly worry about it. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, that's not a thing that I see a lot with with Zoomers. I think with Zoomers, there's just a much more generalized anxiety. Yes. You know, I, I think like, you know, for, for all of the hating I do on Jonathan Haidt, um, <laughs> I think Jonathan Haidt is very wrong about AI regulation. But um, I, I will say that, that I do find the social media and phone stuff convincing. I, I do think that there is a kind of, uh, around relationships especially, there's a kind of anxiety. There's a kind of paranoia around... Yeah, e- even around even around sex, I think, like relative to past generations and and around intimacy as well. I think that um, Height and Twenge document this quite well. Um, yeah, there's there's we have we have a problem with intimacy in America. We've the, the younger millennial generation is just obsessed with power, power, power. They mm. read they you know, it's not even the Harry Potter generation. It's the Hunger Games generation. Mm. <laughs> it's the idea of like. Your purpose in life is to like, you know, is to overthrow the government and to be the smiling, you know, un- unsmiling, <laughs> like super like serious revenge motivated kill machine like that, that decade, the decade of people who are now like, you know, basically like 20, like late 20s through late 30s. That's a that's to some degree a lost generation. And you guys have to suffer for their sins. You Zoomers. Wait, wait is that why they're all AI Doomers, too? Yeah. Huh. Okay. 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 The Zoomers, you gotta, you gotta come in and fix things, and we older millennials will help you because we remember a time before the Great Recession, before the social unrest. We're old enough to remember a time when like things worked better, and American society, for all its problems, you know, sort of of stumbled, you know, along in the direction of progress, and where things were optimistic. We remember optimism, and. We need to transfer it to you. We need to skip the middle people and skip the Hunger Games mini generation, right? Skip those guys and go straight to the Zoomers. The older millennials need to teach the Zoomers how to be optimistic again because all the, the generalized anxiety and like anguish and just like general pessimism that Zoomers are being made to feel comes from the social unrest uh, that was prosecuted by the younger millennials and the sort of uh, the some of the maladaptive responses, like being anti-relationship, anti-love, that they came up with as solutions to the social problems of their day. You are suffering for their sins, right? So, yeah. So, so are we at more of an equilibrium now, or is it, or is it still, or is it still correcting? It'll always bounce back and forth. You know, we never, you never completely reach equilibrium. Uh, there's like uh, oscillations and random fluctuations and all this stuff. But um, but I, I do think that now there's a realization that a lot of the uh, sort of um, a lot of the social innovations and evolutions of the 2010s don't make sense. Like the the the. You know, and of course, I'm not just, you know, accusing progressive of this, too, because a lot of the stuff that the, the, the right has come up with came up with during these years. is Absolutely insane. Like. Um, just up? dredging up sort of the worst discredited old crap. Like, um, 
Oh man, I just you like know. restrictionism, right? Well, that's, sure, restrictionism. You know, like this. Come up with in the 2010s. Yeah, like you're a you're a tradcath gamer with an anime avatar, like you know, posting about like defense of Western civilization. Like honestly, shut up forever. Go away. They're stupid. Like there's there that that kind of person is not going to help America. There's no future in that kind of thing. And the idea all that three of those, man. <laughs> pardon? Sorry, go on. You know, all, three all, of them. all three of those. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, that's three. That's, I'm saying that's just like one example of just the maladaptive shit. Yeah, like, sure. And and for the for the right wing people, it's it's the Gen Xers who sort of went nuts, right? It's 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 your parents' generation who who are like Xers. a little who bit older like than right wing Gen Xer. Like, is JD Vance a Gen Xer? I guess, right? I guess. I think he's, he's too he's, young to he be. Is he be, a millennial? He might he, be a millennial. He may be technically a millennial. He may be like my age. I don't remember. JD Vance. Older millennial. Age. He's only 38? Yeah, he's uh, nice. he's like older millennial. JD Vance does not look 38. Man, I thought he was like 50. Oh, my goodness. I don't know, man. The hillbilly uh, uh, lifestyle aged him, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway. Wait, yeah. I don't know. I think like the online right, I, I think I don't know. I, I'm I'm friends with a, a lot of the people, not not like randos, like like some people who post about it, right? So, some more well known people. I, I think like the thing that they they really understand is like I, I think for a long time the populists or the social conservatives just didn't were were just like completely behind in terms of their understanding of political economy in terms of, you know, both the practical legislation process and from the kind of academic side. You, you know, like, that was the early purpose of this blog slash podcast, right, of my blog and podcast, was just looking at, like, some of the stuff that older um, or, like, more conservative, like, populists were posting about political economy. They were posting about, like, Burnham and whatever. And and looking at, like, libertarians and looking at, like, their, at, like, public choice theory and saying, like, Look, you guys are kind of saying the same thing. You guys are kind of put, put, putting the same pieces together about elites and about kind of political coalitions and about power. And it's like, yeah, on on net, I think that's good. Like, like on net, I think just a much more realistic understanding of politics is good. I, I do think like the kind of aesthetics and the kind of like, you, you know, like Tradcath is like, you know, Tradcath is like the right wing pronouns in bio, right? Or like the sword emoji. It, it's like that kind of thing. I do think there's a kind of like, yeah, there, there's a kind of sheaf of it that gets gets too online and that gets like, you know, if you're like posting a lot and you're not, and your job does not involve posting or you're not getting, basically like you should be getting returns from your posting either in terms of like, I kind of respect the grifters more, but even more so like policy returns. You should be like going and working in policy if this is something that you care so much about. And, and I know some people who are like that, right? So there are good people in it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I do think it's like, it is like the internet thing. It, it's just a part of life. Right. Um, that that one quote of mine never fails to come back, right? Uh, which quote? The uh, <laughs> 15 years the ago. Crossing the crossing river? Internet was an escape from the real world. Now the real world is an escape from the internet. <laughs> I don't know. The internet is still pretty good. I'm actually optimistic about the internet. I think the internet is great. I'm kind of um, not actually. I'm that's huh. like, one of one of my things is that I'm pessimistic about the enshittification of the internet because like so, so, so sorry. Oh, I, let me I, be a I, pessimist. I, I want to be a pessimist. 
Let me okay. be pessimistic about no, something. No, I, I literally didn't hear what you said. Oh, right. I'm, I'm the... pessimistic about the enshittification of the internet. That's a word that Cory Doctorow, the sci-fi writer, made up. What does that mean? So it's going to get worse. Essentially, um, during the Cambrian explosion phase of the internet, everyone was, was gra- rushing to grab market share by giving away awesome stuff for free. And then that ran out. And now Google is just is no longer a search over, you know, the web of links. It's now a search over a database of people who've paid for Google ads, you know, so you can search Google and it brings up just like a list of ads. That is what you get now instead of search results. Like that is in shitification, right? That is just like, that's terrible. Google's dead. It's like, I can't use Google anymore. That sucks. And um, I, Wikipedia is still good, but like Twitter, Twitter used to, I mean, Twitter had its, its, its own specialized problems, but like Twitter has gone down <laughs> so much in quality and, and well before Elon Musk took over, you know, I think Elon may have accelerated. I'm not even sure, but like Twitter was on its way down for like years and years. Like it's, you know, it has its own, you know, special problems. Like Facebook's a, a dying ghost town. Like, you know, like you know, TikTok is, is, I, I never really liked TikTok that much, honestly, but like, um, I think that, uh, generative AI is really cool. And, but if, you know, I'm, I worry about modal collapse, right. Which now everyone is calling model collapse, but, um, <laughs> you know, just like generative AI spamming so much shit into the internet ecosystem that it just retrains itself on its own spam. And then it's just like, you know, pumping out the same tropes again and again. We've seen this happen with Twitter, with human beings doing this, right? We've seen modal collapse from human beings with no models involved, where where everyone just makes the same five takes on Twitter and everyone just does the same five dunks on those takes, right? It's just the same things over and over again. I've seen it before. I've seen it. No one says anything new on the platform. We've, we've mined out the space of new things to say, I guess, or else we just like talk in this familiar cant of these tired takes and these tired dunks on the tired takes. And I hate it. And, um, and I think generative AI could just be this, but algorithmic instead of human. Um, and so just, Mm. there's almost no part of the internet. I mean, there's still, there's still parts of the internet I think are just as good. Like Reddit, I don't know, you know, uh, maybe not with the current fracas and like crackdown or whatever. I don't know how that's going to change Reddit because I'm not really a Redditor. I just read it. I don't post. But, um, but like Reddit still seems pretty good. Wikipedia still seems pretty good. YouTube is still great. There's parts of the internet that are still great, still working just like they ought to. Right. But then parts of the internet that are just getting shittier and shittier and shittier. And now everything, you know, I'm, I run a subscription based business, right? I have my newsletter. It's based on subscriptions. But yeah, all of you guys subscribe to noopinion.substack. Thank you. All you uh, yeah. three people who listened for two and a half hours. To this part of the podcast, please subscribe. If you're that dedicated, you better become a paid no opinion subscriber. You're the hardcore elite. (laughs) But like, okay, so I I have a subscription based business, but honestly, um, like, um, there's too many subscription based things. You know, there's more subscriptions than people can subscribe to, and no one's figured out bundling. We never figured out the micro payments thing. It's just like so many of the the things you want to see are behind paywalls. Like, um, like so many of the good things of the internet just die. Remember web comics? You're too young for we web. Still comics. have web comics. <laughs> a few, 
Like, when was the last time you found a good new webcomic? I don't know. Uh, have you seen a Have you seen a zero game on the on the webtoon on the normal webtoon app? No, no, I haven't. You should you should you should send me a link. Okay. I um, um, PhD comics. That was great. That was like sort of a later one. Um, never heard of it. I'll, I'll check it out. <laughs> anyway, no, that I'm just saying the great era of web comics was the the 2000s and early 2010s. It was the anyway. I guess what I what I'm saying is that like people eventually needed to make money off the internet and the massive collapse in tech stocks and pullback in venture capital and the sort of drying up of all funding for consumer internet technology is basically, we are in a period of consolidation. The, the explosion period is over. The consolidation period is happening now. And we can start to see with Google, the, the easing into the, the sunset industry period, the decline period. And if you look at economic indicators, you see that technology industries have gotten much less dynamic. In fact, I just saw a post about this today um, from EIG, the, the Economic Innovation Group. Um, this the startup rates in the internet sector have declined, and just like, yeah, it's, we're, we're the internet as an industry is sort of declining, and so, and I think a lot of the awesome explosion of content came from the the fact that everyone was giving everything away for free in those early decades. Yeah, this is a different trajectory than I thought we were going to go on. On this point, maybe I agree. Hmm. Okay, sorry for me. I need to think about this more. I brought pessimism to an optimism podcast. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. We we had two hours of optimism. (laughs) We enjoy enjoy our 10 minutes of pessimism. Okay, we can have a little Uh, pessimism as a treat. Yeah. Yeah, everyone who listens to this podcast is a masochist, you know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, it's really interesting that, like, you're getting into this stuff at 22. When I was 22, I was clinically depressed. But, you know, when I was around that age, I was just, like, so much more into the physical world uh, that it's interesting to see what people are doing in an age when everyone's into the digital world from day one. Like, you know, I was still, when I was, like, 23, I guess, I was still just, like, constantly, you know, going to punk rock shows and and hanging out with like fashion kids at fashion stores. It's living in Japan too. Um, and then just, you know, internet was sort of an escape from that. It was where I went to read like weirdo blogs and econ stuff and like web comics and, you know, play like little flash games and whatever, whatever I did on the internet in like the mid two thousands. Right. Um, that was, that was that era. And that was great because I had the, the real world and the internet world. And now I feel like you guys just have the internet world, to be honest. I, maybe the real world will come back now that like the long, the, the long pandemic era is trailing off or whatever. But I think like social media has become so central to people's lives that you guys are going to really have to work to, to rebuild IRL interactions, you know? Yeah, so, so I, I I think I've told this story. Actually, no, I don't think I've told this story on a public podcast. But so, so I've told this story um, in like someone else's private podcast before. But I like manually built my university life social fabric. Like I just went around. So, so like University of Waterloo is like this technical school that is like especially dead. You're, you're, in, you're in Silicon Valley. You would know, uh, you would know what University of Waterloo is. 
but it's this like particularly socially dead university full of like high IQ autists in Canada, right? Um, full yeah. of like software engineers, essentially. Um, it actually has like hardware engineers and like chemists and doctors and whatever, but like hard science, uh, hard science, and especially computer science is what it's known for. And I, ev- I eventually just like got bored of every club being terrible and just went around campus talking to like probably like 200 people in total and just like ended up making a group chat with like 15 of them. And I'm like, this is my new social fabric. I'm going to host like, I'm going to host monthly like dinners and stuff. And it actually worked. And that's awesome. I, I think that like Zoomers just need to do this. Zoomers need to like brute force these problems. So, you know, scale is all you need. <laughs> um, yes. Just talk, to, just talk to 200 people. Yes. All right. Talk to strangers. Do that. Sorry, go on. That, that's great. I'm not going on. I, I, I think that's awesome. I'm just affirming. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's good to hear. I, I remember, yeah, it's, it's, I think like Simone Collins independently recommended something similar with regards to dating. Uh, I, I do think it's like kind of right um, that that essentially doubling the number of people you talk to is uh, is doubling your probability of finding a match. And there are very few things that you can do to double your probability of finding a match. Um, yeah. So, so what's interesting is seeing like, at, at age 22, I knew so little about sex and relationships that, like, it's astonishing. So, so for the, for listeners, I'm, like, asexual now, whatever. That wasn't always true. That's been true for a while, but it was not always true. Um, I used to just have, like, you know, fairly normal sex life or whatever. Um, but at 22, I was just a complete ignoramus. Like, most... So much of like, I just imagined things based on random things I had heard from some person, you know, like I didn't really, I didn't really know. And it wasn't until years of sort of doing it, of, of having relationships and having sex and, you know, like actually engaging in that part of life that I learned, you know, and, and honestly, my experience was going to be different than everyone else's, like everyone's experience in that that is, is different, but at least you, you learn sort of the reality on the ground instead of having to theorize it. You know, people have relationships in high school and college, and I guess, um, they have some, but like though, like high school relationships are a joke. Um, college relationships are, you know, short, tempestuous and confusing, right? You think like, oh my God, I'm so in love. Is this the person I'm going to be with forever? And then next week you're broken up. It's like, that's what a college relationship is like. And, it's just, it's very confusing. And some people don't even have college relationships. Like I, there's been this massive decrease in relationships and sex among young people in America, but also in, in every rich country, you know, in Japan, famously also in Britain, uh, other places, you know, I, I don't even, there's probably, I think France is bucking the trend and French, French young people still hook up, but, but I think like Americans have this giant sex recession. Oh, of course it's France. <laughs> of course it's France. Sorry. Like yeah. it's, it's their traditional culture. They're, they're keeping the old ways, yeah. but. Good for France. I made fun of you earlier, and now I'm praising you for having less sex. <laughs> anyway. Wait, less or more? Less. Less sex. I'm okay. praising you for having more. I see. More. I see. I see. Um, yeah. No, that's just... Uh, anyway. But but yeah, so like, I don't know. For for 22-year-olds, if that's who's listening to this podcast, you know, if I'm talking to a bunch of like, you know, nerdy kids who just know what they've like read on some blog, <laughs> and then no go out and date like real people and you'll find out what things really work. Um, there's a couple, there's two accounts that I think are really good for this to follow on Twitter, by the way. 
for relationship advice. The funny thing is that they absolutely despise each other and want to kill each other. <laughs> Many such cases. And that's they, like, you, you know, that that's all of the podcast guests on, on this podcast. Everyone who goes on the From the New World podcast is obligated to hate everyone else. Okay, well, I don't know I'm who sorry, all the other people are, so I don't know if I hate them. But um, but you said Tyler was on there, and he's awesome. So um, anyway. Yeah, that's true. All right. But okay, so the two accounts are uh, Brandon Bradford and Will Riley. And the, oh, I know Will Riley. Yeah. yeah. And Brandon Bradford. So Brandon Bradford is progressive and Will Riley is conservative. They're both black. They're both like around 40 years old or somewhere. They're like around J.D. Vance age, whatever. And um, <laughs> or my age, that's, they're around the same age as me. And then, um, but then, you know, they hate each other over like, you know, racial politics and like progressive versus conservative stuff, even though when they're not talking to each other, they often end up with similar conclusions and um, not always, but like some of the time, but, but they have extremely similar perspectives on like dating and sex and, and whatever. And those two guys are very good to follow because they've sort of like been around the block and they have a reasonable attitude toward the whole thing. And like one of the things that they both stress Remember, you're thinking about a, lib- a progressive and a conservative who hate each other, who fundamentally agree on one on a couple things, right? And one thing they stress is that there's no such thing as what women want. And that when, when you are a young man, there is a massive tendency to try to decide what women want. And many people will give you an answer. And, you know, the answer could be like, Women want like a strong guy who's tough and will take charge or women want just a guy who has the perfect facial bone structure or women want this or women want that. Um, Someone is always willing to tell you exactly what women want. And the truth is there is no such object. There is no such thing. Asking what women want is like asking what kind of ice cream people like. You can look at some statistics and say chocolate is popular, but then ultimately you go to the ice cream shop and there's a million flavors, right? And so... The point is that Tate actually what what women actually want in real life, uh, I'm talking about straight women, what they want from a man, is amazingly varied. Amazingly varied. There's huge variation. And it's just astonishing how much variation there is. And, you know, people don't just go around, women don't just go around like yelling that, like, I like something different than what other people like. Like, no one goes around yelling that. They keep it to themselves, like especially because in our culture, women are discouraged from expressing desire or attraction at all because then they get tarred as slutty. Right. And that's like a shitty part about our culture. But um, but yeah, like the more women that, you know, the more you will realize that like tastes differ incredibly. And that's just one example, by the way, of the sort of things that like, you know, young men should learn like it's. Young men should listen to someone who's not like a Jordan Peterson type or like a red pill community type or like an incel type or any of those, those people, those people don't know shit, you know? And even if they did know shit, they're just, you know, they're just grifting and lying. And so like, I don't know, those people suck so much. um, Yeah. Like young men need better, like adult male role models. Um, and so that's why people should should follow those guys on on Twitter to just see the sensible things that they say about sex and relationships. Maybe that's like, I don't know. I, I feel like this is the thing that's actually correcting. Maybe that's just because of like my so- social circle and my kind of like selection bias. 
but it seems like th- that space is actually kind of healing. Like, like, what do you think of, uh, what do you think of Jeffrey Miller? Jeffrey you know Miller? Jeffrey Miller is. I don't know. He yeah, blocked me permanently. On, uh, on Twitter. He permanent. he blocked me. What? Why did he block you? A long time ago. Is it because you, he, he's really like, wait, a long time ago. Yeah. Like many okay. years ago, he blocked me. What the heck? Why would he block you? Um, okay. why would he block me? I don't know. I think I like, I might've called him an ethno nationalist. I think. Is he like, tell me I'm wrong uh, though. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Th- this was before I really like paid attention to Twitter, you know, huh? He- he's a kind of AI doomer now. So, so like yeah. I thought it might've been that. But if it was a while ago, then I don't think that's why. Um, yeah, huh. Yes. But, but I do think, like, yeah, the, 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 it, it doesn't matter. The, the, the root point is I think that there are actually some people who, who are much more empirical about this, who, at least in my kind, like, among the people who I'm kind of, like, mutuals with on Twitter, uh, I, I, see, I see promotion of, you know, actual studies and actual, you know, interesting content instead of just like made up that stuff. guy is like poly right whatever yes. yes all i can say is that the women that i know are starting to ask men are you poly at the outset of dating and if they're poly just say like goodbye goodbye i will yeah, I that will, sounds right i will swipe to the next person like honestly like there are real poly people in the world and i know some of them and they're sweet and wonderful people whatever most of the people claim to be poly are not poly they're just jerks <laughs> so that's what i have to say about that yeah i i mean you're an sf right so so like this is actually something that i wanted to to ask you about because you're like in you're in sf but you mostly write about kind of dc things right not literally dc but things that i associate with dc right um macro econ um politics of course um what what is your kind of like what, what is the no opinion like subscriber fan meetup like in SF? There is none because What's I'm like afraid, the SF. Like Sorry, I've been afraid ahead. to do it. I did a joint one with Rune, but then um. Oh, that's interesting. But then uh, and that was fun. Like a lot of people showed up, but I basically I got to do more. Got to do more like community stuff. Um, yeah. Do do you have like any idea of what the local audience is like? I'd be interested in that. Uh, just a lot of tech people. I mean, I, I I often hear from tech people. Yeah, like like, but but okay, so so that's not a very specific category for me, right? Like, well, what is the kind of like political preferences, the the kind of aesthetic of of such tech people? Are they more you know MBA or or engineers? Are they more you know all, all these interesting questions? Uh, I think, you know, like, uh, engineers, venture capitalists, those two. Yeah. Um, makes sense. Makes sense. Because, you know, the venture capitalists like more of the big picture stuff and the engineers, um, I, I feel like engineers want a break from work where they can keep their mental wheel sort of like spinning. Yeah. Yeah. And then by thinking about something that they're not necessarily like paid to think about. And so I think that yes, that's why engineers, such cases. so the venture capitalists want it for the like, cause the ideas add to their worldview and whatever. And the engineers like it because it gives them a distraction from work. 
Yeah, so, so, so that's how I, I got started paying attention to politics as well. So yeah, um, many, many such cases. Yeah. Um, right, so, so, so if you ever get an update on that, I, I'm very interested. I, I'm always interested in like, what are the, what are the kind of DC adjacent people? Because it's very different, you know, like the, the kind of um, DC adjacent Silicon Valley person who's kind of like friends with, um, say, Tyler Cowen, right? The, the Tyler Cowen audience is very different from like the Curtis Yarvin audience, right? You, right? you can imagine, you can imagine. But like both of those are kind of like tech and politics intersection people, right? Um, so, so it's always it's always interesting, especially like to, to me, it's very interesting the kind of personality type that, that that crosses the barrier and how it varies between different people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the... um. Honestly, I think the, the Yarvin people are not going to be big fans of me because those people think a lot about political fights and culture wars. I think that yeah, the... Yeah, like, I, I don't know. People who listen... Okay, people who listen to this podcast, you know, the, like, the people who listen to this podcast are used to this by now. You know, you'll you'll have, like... Yeah, you'll have people who, who just, like, explicitly hate each other. I think I had, like, someone who is for, like, near open borders, if not open borders, right next to, like, a Trump official um, who was very much against that, right? I, I think that, like, I, I set this up to the point where, like, everyone who's listening to this podcast is, like, a high decoupler at this point. Is a high decoupler? Maybe, like, a... A high decoupler. So, so like, the, this is, like, a Slate Star Codex thing, right? Oh, I was, like, like Heidi Alexander. Sorry? I was like, Heidi? I don't know her. Sorry, what? Okay, uh, I may have just... I'm kidding you. It's it's a joke because Heidi Coupler sounds like Heidi Coupler. Oh, I see. Okay. A person's okay. name named Heidi. Anyway, all right, go ahead. Yeah, so, so, so right. So, so Scott Alexander made, made this term up. Uh, I, I don't know if you know it or not, but uh, for the audience, um, Heidi Couplers and low decouplers are essentially... So a Heidi Coupler is someone who basically kind of detaches themselves from kind of um political fights is very very good at thinking about like conditionals um basically does not have a very high sense of sacred or moral attachment to the arguments that they listen to um kind of like a classical liberal although less of a political philosophy and more of just a way of kind of living in the world and uh low decoupler is just the opposite of that right and uh, yeah, mean, I think everyone who listens, like low low decouplers think the personal is political, and high decouplers are able to sort of separate out that part of life. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. I know that. I know that, right? Um, that that has always been a that has always been a thing. Um, if you do, you know the? Have you ever heard of Hair, the opera Hair? Um, no, I don't think so. In the sixties, it was like a rock opera about hippie kids in New York. And um, yeah, no, no. And there was this this one I don't song. pay attention to a lot of opera. <laughs> well, it's uh, you know they call it a musical, but musicals are just opera. But anyway, um, they uh, there's yeah there's this one song where uh, some some you know girl is complaining that people are heartless and cruel, but especially the cruelest people are the people who care about strangers and social injustice, but only care about the bleeding crowd instead of a needing friend, and so. <laughs> The idea of high decouplers and low decouplers has been around um, for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a kind of like meta, you know, there are a lot of EAs in this audience. Maybe you didn't expect that, actually. You know, there, there's a lot of like, 
I think I say, man, I do so many podcasts. I had no idea what this was. I thought this, you know, I thought this was going to be like a podcast about like industrial policy or something. I mean, that's where we started. It was where we started. started. Um, This is kind of what I mean by like everyone hates each other. Like I've had Curtis on, I've had like uh, Dwarkesh on, I've had like just like normal, normal libertarians on. I like Like, Dwarkesh is great. Yeah. Dwarkesh is awesome. I, I really liked that episode. But like, yeah, you'll you'll get a lot of you'll. I I am someone who stands for like the united forces of highly online people. You know, <laughs> just needs to go back to writing like poetry, like in his college days. I, I think like he, he's kind of doing that, right? He he's doing like All the right. passage prize stuff now. Have so, you ever so, you seen know, a, Have you ever seen the the famous video of of Curtis as a Berkeley kid reading poetry at a poetry reading? Uh, yes, <laughs> that was pretty amusing. Um, it took me a moment, but I think so. Yeah, I think I've seen that. Yeah. Um. Anyway, right. so so on doomerism. Okay. So, so so do you do you have a hard cutoff? Uh. Yeah. Let's let's cut off soon. Yeah. I I got through I got through like ninety percent of the prep. Uh, I do think we got into very interesting answers on doomerism, and yeah, I think uh, I think you know regardless of the audience type who who am i saying you know a lot of people are gonna a lot of people are going to be angry as with every episode but um i'm gonna ask them to be nice as always um so the last question of the show the last question of the show as always uh every for every guest what is something that has too much order needs more chaos and something that has too much chaos needs more order Ooh, a question for dungeons and dragons players i love it i'm gonna be the neutral <laughs> balancer from AD&D second edition um <laughs> What is something that you know, needs we more? We are in the True Neutral podcast. Yes. <laughs> that's actually True Neutral would be a great name for a podcast. Um, hmm. your, your podcast is named after anime, right? Like there's an anime Shinsekaiori? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. This is wonderful. That ha- have r- you watched roughly translates as from the new world, I think. Yes, that, that is correct. It is named after Shinsekaiori. Uh, wait, so have you watched Shinsekaiori? No, I haven't. I just know of it. Oh, unfortunate. Okay, I was very excited to ask you about it. Um, it is, it is indeed, it is a work of art that has changed my life. Um, it is also um, in the sci-fi horror genre. Yeah. So um, take that, take that as you will. Um, there are many plot twists. Let's say that. Okay. So, so uh, too much order needs more chaos. Too much chaos needs more order. Too much order needs more chaos. Um. Well, China. Too much order. Yeah. China has attempted yeah. to, to impose a rigid order on all things in the universe and uh, and to yoke that entire order to like one mediocre boomer guy. And like, that is just asking for a rebalancing. You know, and they almost got it in zero COVID. Had she persisted in zero COVID <laughs> oh, for man. just another couple of months, you might have seen like the country fall apart. And that would have been too much chaos, too much swinging of the pendulum back toward chaos. But China went from having too much chaos in the Cultural Revolution to just about the right amount of chaos in like the, you know, uh, 80s. And then to like too much order, progressively too much order, um, you know, starting under Xi Jinping. Um, And now it is time for that pendulum to swing a little bit back. China is too rigid and it's going to, it's going to order itself right into the middle income trap, you know? Oh, unfortunate. Yeah. And what needs Uh, more chaos? Do you have something for too much chaos? What, what has too much 
uh, chaos needs more order. Yes. Um, too much chaos needs more order. Would I mean the obvious answer is just like you know the United States uh, uh, regulatory process, <laughs> like you know with NEPA, everyone running around suing everyone else. Too much chaos. Yeah, too much chaos. Just like it's every, just everyone suing everyone. Hmm. It's complete yeah. chaos. Um, too much chaos needs uh, more. I, yeah, go ahead. I, I think like with regards to NEPA, people have like given this as an answer for both. Right, it is too much. It is too much order, and that there's too much like obstruction, and it's too slow. But it's too much chaos, and that it's just like all kind of bullshit. It's it's. So I think people have given it as as both answers. NEPA is chaotic. NEPA is is there's something called tax farming, where instead of getting an IRS, you just enable like random like private citizens to collect taxes from each other, and it's a really bad idea. NEPA is regulation farming, where instead of having a bureaucracy to administer regulation, we have people sue each other over it. And so that's it's, it's <laughs> that's a low end strategy of uh, of state formation. It's the working way. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, but that's I, but but okay. So let me think of a better answer than that. So something that has more uh, that has more chaos needs more order. Um, has more chaos needs more order. I'm trying to think of. I mean, like America, every American city, like San Francisco, is just complete anarchy at this point. It is just, I live in a city of anarchy. And you know what? I personally like derive enjoyment from that because I love cyberpunk science fiction. And every day I get to walk out and actually live in a William Gibson novel. But (laughs) those were supposed to be dystopian. And the fact that it's fun for me would annoy William Gibson if he heard it. And so like, it it wasn't supposed to be an instruction manual. Right. It was supposed to be a dystopia. And like San Francisco is a dystopia for all the people who economically depend on the city. Right. Who need to raise kids here, who need to like make a living here, who need the services the city provides. It San Francisco is a giant chaos whale. And the sooner that the Dean Preston faction, uh, you know, gets gets booted from office, if that can ever happen, the sooner that happens, the sooner we can start to swing the pendulum back toward order in this town. That that's great. We we have completed the exodia of pissing people off. We have pissed off everyone. I've pissed audience. off everyone. Um, th- this is great. Uh, maybe maybe not the Tyler Cowen faction. We we've been very happy towards the uh, state capacity. People. Right. Well, I would like um, to end it by saying I pissed, right. <laughs> every, I pissed everyone off, but there's a reason for that. There's method to my madness here, and the answer is that in in finding the new equilibrium of American society. We're going to have to make compromises. We're going to have to find ways to learn to live with it, just as we did when American society sort of knitted itself back together in the 80s and 90s. We're going to have to all be find ways to live with being a little pissed off, but only a little. We've got to distribute the losses from the social, the new social equilibrium as widely as possible so that everyone's a little pissed off about something, but no one's so pissed off they want to kick over the system anymore. All right. You know, I of all the people who are pissed off, I'm not one of them. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yay. Uh, thanks for coming on, Noah. Absolutely. It's been fun. I can't believe we talked for three hours. That was my conversation with Noah Smith. I hope you liked it. If you did, you can subscribe to get a new episode every single Monday. You can also help us out by, as I said at the beginning of the show, letting a friend know, or by giving us a like, a five-star review on any podcast app, 
and to comment to suggest some future changes or future guests to invite on the show. I appreciate it. And as always, we'll see you next week for another great episode.